Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me, as always, is... Catherine, sister! That's right, my sister. And we are here this week to talk about a very special film. A film that will go down in the annals of history as perhaps one of the goodest, baddest films ever. Uh, especially in terms of the comic book film. And that, of course, is 2007's Ghost Rider. Mark Steven Johnson. His second time out in the Marvel Universe uh, after a surprisingly successful run with Daredevil starring Ben Affleck and his future wife, Jennifer Garner. Um, but we're here to focus on the Nick Cage-driven Elvis impersonator style Ghost Rider, um, which is a, a movie that I know we both have uh, some significant affection for. It's not a perfect film. We'll get into that. But it certainly is a memorable one. Um, so we talked a little bit off mic, and I don't think either of us really watched much of anything this week. I think we uh, caught up on a few episodes of things here and there, but nothing substantial. Did you have anything that you were wanting to chat about or interested in? Just been watching trashy YouTube videos. My my guiltiest of pleasures. Mm. And that is that is a okay. I think my kids checked out the uh, new Netflix Camp Cretaceous, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous show. Um and uh reported back that it was pretty good. I only watched a little bit of the first two episodes. Um I I, I love Jurassic park stuff it just hit at such an ideal time in my life i'll always kind of like it i know the last several outings the jurassic world extension of the franchise is, you know they're not beloved films by any stretch the first one is basically the soft reboot force awakens style get the party rolling with new people type movie and then the second one was was very problematic and it didn't work super well but you know whatever dinosaurs and, uh, you know, so they were super excited and very into the, the animated show. So I'm kind of excited to see where that goes. But I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. But other than that, a pretty light week. Not too much going on in the old entertainment department. But that means that we can just get into our topic of the week. Ghost Rider. Um, so this episode will probably need a bit of context, right? We've already talked about some comic book movies on this podcast, especially some of the ones that were near misses, like 2003's Hulk, which is very much in this same era of Marvel movies, right? Um, the cinematic universe as we know it today kicked off the year after Ghost Rider came out, 2008 with Iron Man. But we were, 2005, 2007, were, it was kind of a crazy time in film. Uh, huge blockbusters coming out pretty much every year. We had Transformers right around this time, uh, I think later this year, actually. And just, uh, you know, an explosion of, you know, popular, nostalgic franchises hitting cinemas and, and sort of blowing up. And Ghost Rider was certainly attempting to, at least in some way, capitalize on that. Um, but it also is a product of a very different time at Marvel. Uh, so we'll get into that here in just a little bit too, but um, I'm excited to talk about it. It's a, it's a fun film, right? And that's one thing I, th I think we can't really deny about Mark Stephen Johnson is that tonal problems aside, script problems aside, he tried to make comic book movies that were fun, 
not completely, right? They failed a little bit. Um, but he was willing to sort of lean heavier into the schlock components of comic book movies in ways that modern comic book movies just simply won't. And, and I, I kind of appreciate that because at their heart, many comic books are schlock at their core. Uh, and Ghost Rider absolutely fits that bill. Um, <laughs> as we've discussed, I mean, he's basically a writer sitting saying, how the hell did Evil Knievel make that jump? Dude must have sold his soul to the devil. And then, like, two dudes in a room look at each other, and their and their eyes lock. And they go, cool. <laughs> And they go, oh, damn, that's a comic book. <laughs> and, then they, and then they write that. So... Um, the the failure of Ghost Rider was was pretty bombastic. It made a little bit of money. It was not a complete financial flop. Yeah, people saw it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the problem was they spent a lot of money on it. Uh, Ghost Rider was really expensive. It had a lot of very expensive computer effects, which are still period. pretty good. They're still pretty good. Um, the the overall Ghost Rider effect and the effect of the motorcycles and. You know all of the all of the stuff they're doing with like flames and flame technology is is surprisingly solid. Um, it's still anchored in. There's very little pure digital Ghost Rider in this. There definitely are some, especially when he's on the motorcycle. But as often as possible, Ghost Rider is tied to a physical performance, and I think that really helps keep it good. It also helps that it's such an outlandish character design that you kind of buy it, right? It's almost cartoonish in its presentation and so you're more willing to accept it as as a thing that's real right whereas if they're doing some kind of like weird face replacement on Nicolas Cage or something it would be it'd be much much worse and there are a few transition sequences as he's going from Nick Cage to Ghost Rider that are a little bit wonky but well then we have to it looks okay we have to address the the special effect that was Nicolas Cage's torso Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the added in post-production uh, muscles. Uh, apparently somebody on the Ghost Rider set was like, dude, big big dudes with big muscles are coming in comic book movies, and this is going to become the de facto standard. we got to get in front of this train. Um, I'm thinking that somebody had seen a trailer for 300, is what I'm thinking. That was the beefcake out, film. <laughs> 300 came out a month after this movie. This movie came out in February. Uh, 300 came out in March. And and blew up, right? Like, huge money um, on a much smaller budget. But that was the first, like, beefcake comic book movie. It had always been there. Like, Banna looked really good in Hulk. And, you know, obviously the Spider-Man movies, Tobey Maguire always got his, like, you We know, weren't really shot, celebrating but... beefcakes yet. No, not it was not a huge component. Wasn't there was no Chris Evans you know? yet. <laughs> no, there was no Chris Hemsworth, no Chris Evans, none of the mighty Chris's of the Marvel Universe, uh, Chris Pratt, etc. And uh, but we were certainly trending that direction, and somebody saw that writing on the wall. And unfortunately, Nick Cage had not, you know, buffed out for the Ghost Rider role. Well, or see, some he black did. Tees, but he, he did, did buff just not, he not he got yeah. in just killer shape but the thing is when you are as as advanced in your career as he was by the time this movie got made it's really hard to look it's hard to look like chris evans when you're significantly older than he is um right. yeah you have to put in a lot more work to get to that level i feel kind of bad for nicholas cage because this is his dream role mm-hmm. 
this was the character that you he would probably argue that he was born to play. Yeah. Um, it is his favorite comic book character. He has a ghostwriter tattoo. He does. Um, I can remember uh, us talking about this movie, I think, in 2002, 2003, and it had gone into pre-production. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nicolas Cage called and insisted that he was ghostwriter. Like, you yeah, will hire he, he me to be ghostwriter. Um, yeah, Ghostwriter was another long gestating project um, at Marvel Studios, and and Cage had very early in the process expressed like, "I am, I am Ghostwriter. I will do like, anything." Yeah. And and his commitment to the role is is unquestionable. Like he is attempting to do something with this character. I don't really think that Steve Mark Stephen Johnson knew what to do with his take on Ghostwriter nor was he capable of massaging his performance in a different direction. Um, yeah, because we know Nicolas Cage sense. can bring the goods. He's a great oh, yeah. actor. No, and there are glimpses of that here. Again, I, I think it's more just Mark Stephen Johnson not really knowing how to deal with his take on that character and just sort of letting it lay there. And and I've got some pieces of evidence for his sort of, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this kind of thing. So we can talk about that. Um, but let's get into it. Let's let's just jump right in because we've got a lot to talk about with this one, I think. So the failure is is pretty complete. It made a little bit of money, doubled its budget, but once you consider like theater costs and, and all of the various things going into that, it, it probably barely broke even. Um, from a critical standpoint, it has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> which is pretty rough. The audience score is much higher, 48%. With a lot of ratings, 730,000, so a lot of people have seen this movie and had thoughts on it. Uh, many of them are not good. I read through some user reviews on this one just because I was curious to see what the, the general consensus was. And it pretty much swings one way or the other. There's no in-between, like, eh, it's okay. It's people either who think Nicolas Cage needs to die in a horrific Ghost Rider-style fire for doing this, and then people who are like, man, this movie's actually okay. Um so there's there's not much middle ground in, in that group. But that's kind of just the internet, so who knows. But uh, critically speaking, definitely panned pretty hard. And I, think it's, I don't think it's difficult to see why. Uh, many pieces of this movie do not hang together. It's quite long, and it feels long, which is the main thing. It's, it's not quite two hours, so we're not... You know, we're not pushing into that, you know, two and a half hour range where it's just interminable, but it feels two hours long. And, and, um, I think people noted that. So, you know, the, the, if you are unaware, basic setup for Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider is, uh, a, a stunt driver named Johnny Blaze <laughs> who made a deal with the devil to save his father's life. His father was dying. Uh, generally it's cancer in the modern versions. I don't remember if that's what it was in the seventies. I can't, I don't think it was, but, um, I think the it, modern it was, was. It? I think it was, was. It, it might've been part of, cause the seventies is when Marvel started doing all their like, you know, um, you know, PSA stuff. And I think that might, they might've been like an early, you know, kids don't smoke on the train, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and so it would make sense, but uh, I'd have to go investigate. I, I don't remember his and original. Don't let your parents story. smoke. Well, you'll have to sell your That's soul right. to save them. That's right. Soul, sell your soul to the devil to save him. Uh, so he sells his soul to the devil to save his father's life. The devil tricks him, ends up having his father die in a stunt, and and basically he sold his soul for nothing. 
Um, so after that, he is possessed by a demon of judgment, uh, Zarathos, and and nightly turns into the ethereal ghost rider who goes around collecting souls for the devil and uh, and bringing judgment to those who have done wrong. Right, pretty standard comic book setup at this point, but um, definitely a lot of seventies influence. Again, the evil you know evil Knievel was very popular at this time, so people were all about. Stunt racing and stunt driving. NASCAR was just taking off. So there's just a lot of people who were interested in, you know, people kind of invested in that world. And Blaze, you know, rose to the top as as an early series of characters that in the 1980s, especially the early 1980s, became hugely popular, which were a sort of underground collection of darker superheroes in the Marvel Universe, right? They they lived in the same world as the other characters, but they did not occupy the same heroic space. So we had Ghost Rider. We had, uh, at, at the time, it was Dr. Morbius, but now he's just Morbius, the living vampire. Uh, Blade, the, uh, who was the, the archenemy of Dr. Morbius. That's how he was introduced, uh, eventually becoming a hero on his own. And then, then very shortly after that, the Punisher. Uh, basically, the group that would come to be known in the late 90s as the Marvel Knights. Um, and uh, some of my favorite Marvel superheroes, if I'm going to be honest. Like, they're not superheroes, I guess, but they are some of right. my favorite people. Right. The uh, the vigilantes, the dark ones, the the more sort of Batman-like anti-heroes that are, are, quite frankly, less frequent in the Marvel Universe. And if they are, they're they're much weirder, right? Like Moon Knight who everybody is apparently all hyped on again. I loved Moon Knight, especially during the David Finch uh, run where he was the artist. I, I read a lot of Moon Knight because he was great. And, and you know, I certainly love that character for what he is, which is a, a sort of bad Egyptian-themed Batman knockoff. <laughs> um, but he's fun. You know, you, you do cool things with the character. But the, those characters are just less common in Marvel stuff. Marvel yeah. is, is much more the that... that you know, 1960s optimism for the future kind of characters. And a lot of, you know, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, they had a lot to do right. with that, right? The, their attitudes were very different than the comic book creators that came in after them in the 70s. You know, those guys were a lot more disaffected. They were a lot angrier. They were a lot more pissed off about the world and a lot more interested in, um, you know, things like EC Comics, right? These This darker, you know, tone of comic book that uh, would be solidified by guys like Alan Moore in the 1980s when they would sort of just launch into these much, much more adult and much, much more dark comic books, especially with DC's Vertigo line, which Marvel didn't really have anything to compete with that no. up until really the Marvel Max in the, uh, like the early 2000s. Right? And even That's still, it really never really established the same ethos as <clears throat> Vertigo. And I'm not no, sure why. No. I, I think DC had better connections with uh, the European comic book creators through like 82,000 and, and those other comics. And I think they were just able to tap into those groups much better than Marvel ever was. Yeah, they just didn't Marvel have a had always been. People. Yeah, Mar and Marvel in the 90s was a mess, which actually contributes directly to this film. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we can briefly recount uh, 
after Marvel slumped hard in the late 1980s. Uh, they'd had some, <laughs> to say the least. They had had some huge success in the 80s with, uh, you know, the Crisis on Infinite Earth, or not Crisis on Infinite Earth, that was DC, but the Infinity Stone series. They had the Dark Phoenix saga, which they just won't yeah. let die. I know. They're doing another big series called the Phoenix something, and all the characters are going to get Dark Phoenixed. It's it's ridiculous. They just won't let that storyline die, even though it's it's – mediocre at best in a bunch of circumstances but i think it's kind of um, stupid <laughs> i mean it's it's fine i like you know making taking a character who at the time in jean gray was sort of forgotten like they just kind of oh jean you know and turning her into the super powerful incredibly you know dangerous character was a really bold choice and it did really cool things with the the x-men and tore them all apart I mean, claremont was a good comic book creator still is but but they have hinged so many runs on that um I mean, they've completely squandered the Age of Apocalypse, which was brilliant. I know. Um, that you know, see, that breaks done my nothing heart. Nothing with that, yeah. That I think that upsets me more than anything because I was yeah. really looking forward to that getting a good treatment, and it didn't. No, and they just turned it into another X Men movie uh, and didn't really do much interesting with it at all. So I mean, but in any case, so Marvel slumped hard in the eighties, uh, early nineties. They saw a resurgence on the comic book side, especially with the Jim Lee fronted X Men. They had some success with their uh, television animated series, most specifically the X-Men animated series in the early 90s, which it was, is it was still so beloved. Serious. It was so serious and so wonderful. Serious as a heart attack, yeah. Um, they had the Iron Man series at the time. They had a, a revived Spider-Man series. And the key thing here is that Marvel began was still struggling. Despite these successes, they were, they were in, in dark shape. And by the time we get to 1996... Marvel is basically bankrupt. They have nothing, um, and they are are looking for someone to purchase them to stay solvent. The success of the comic book series had led to extensive toy deals with a very successful toy company called Toy Biz, mm-hmm. um, who had had hit hard with a series of Batman toys for the '89 Batman movie. They had parlayed that off into many other deals with comic books. And they had done the the very successful first run of X-Men figures based on the animated TV show. So Toy Biz was run by two guys, Avi Arad and Ike Perlmutter. Mm-hmm. Avi Arad had had tremendous success in the toy industry prior and had sort of established Toy Biz as a major player. He was one of the ones that I think he came up with like the doll that would drink and pee. Like I think that was him. So <laughs> just for context. What a legacy. Uh, what a legacy. And uh, basically, Toy Biz used their relationship with Marvel to purchase Marvel, basically outright, in 1996. And so now, Avi Arad and Ike Perlmutter are in charge of Marvel Comics. And supposedly, Arad uh, was immediately convinced that the success that they had found in television with the cartoons meant that movies were the next logical step. And so... He was the one who pushed uh, and and initially formed Marvel Studios, right? Like Avi Arad was behind that. His so name Marvel's, was all over everything for a while, and it still is. Anything that is made outside of the Disney MCU, and even a few projects inside of it, because of deals set up beforehand, still have his name on it because he was the guy. That's some right? socks made of silk money. Oh yeah, like Dang. he's doing fine. He's doing fine. <laughs> Basically, all of the all of the Spider-Man deals at Sony are still his, and he is heavily involved in all of them. 
because he's the one that helped set up that initial deal. Because that's what happened, right? 1996, they buy out the company. Arad immediately goes to Hollywood and says, we got properties. We got stuff that we can turn into movies, and it will be successful. No one cared. Literally no one. Because, I mean, up until that point, what had we seen? That shit-ass Captain America movie with J.D. Salinger's kid in the lead. We had seen um, the the well, nobody had seen it, but I'm sure Hollywood people had seen it. We had the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> um, we had we had uh, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, starring David Hasselhoff. Or mm. like that's the Marvel movies that we had seen. But Arad is like, no, we we can do something here. And so the first project he gets off the ground is Blade. Blade. And it's awesome. <laughs> and it's awesome. Blade hits, and it hits hard. So here is where, and this is why, our first wave of Marvel movies, save for maybe the Hulk, although you could argue the Hulk's part of this too, are all those Marvel Knights guys. Mm-hmm. All right? Because if you look at the movies that come out, you've got Blade. Blade goes. Spider-Man deal happens at the same time, but Sony had made that deal a way, like, way back, and Arad just basically triggered the option he said if you don't make a spider-man movie we're going to take the rights back so they made the the sam raimi spider-man and of course it hits in 2001 a perfect a nearly perfect film um and so but we get blade very quickly after that we get punisher then we get daredevil then we get ghost rider right and these are all of the avi arad films being massaged and pushed out and, and Ghost Rider is really the last one of those. Ghost Rider was the last film from the Marvel Studios headed by Iron Man Avi was Arad. Because Iron Man was next. And Arad left in, in, quite frankly, we don't know the circumstances. Arad refuses to talk. He wrote a letter back in 2014 saying that he deserved more credit for the MCU as we know it now. Because it was right after like Avengers 2 had hit and it was a huge success. But, I mean, like... Basically, he left, and that's when Fe- when Kevin uh, Feige took over. Right, like that was the handoff. Was uh, Arad was like, "I'm done, I'm out," and Kevin Feige stepped in, and that was it. And so, this is the last of that that era, right? And now Arad is basically he was still producer on Venom. Uh, he was producer on Into the Spider Verse, at least in name. And and apparently his part behind the the Doctor Morbius movie that is eventually coming with Jared Leto in the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean he's still out there just pumping the Marvel Knights, right? He's a, he just believes in it, I guess. But but so this this is a product of that Marvel Studios, which was much more experimental. Um, didn't really have a, a singular guiding vision or direction. Just a we have all these interesting properties. Let's get them out there and let people make them. And in this era's defense of not having a blueprint, all of these films are unique. They're not necessarily good. Mm-hmm. They're unique. They don't Absolutely. look like each other. They don't contain similar performances. Uh, with the exception of X-Men, you don't have a lot of, right. of yeah. directors being brought in over and over again. It tends to be new people every time. Um, and a lot of a lot of these movies experiment with the look and feel in a way that I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe does not do anymore. Not anymore. No, they they have their house style. We'll see. You know, you'll get people like Taika Waititi that get a little bit more rope 
to, to, you know, oh, we're going to do vaporwave stuff with this or whatever. Like you'll, you'll find a few of those, but they're going to become increasingly less common. I'm very excited. They just dropped the uh, WandaVision trailer, um, which is based on a very good run in, in the Vision comics um, where it reimagines Wanda and Vision as a leave it to beaver style uh, couple in the 1950s. And then things just get increasingly weirder from there. I know it's not going to be just a full adaptation of it, but that's it's sort of like the tonal adaptation that they're going for. And and it looks exceedingly strange. But mm-hmm. it's also a TV show on Disney Plus. So it's not that major cinematic release that has to sort of touch all corners, right? You can have a much more bespoke and kind of unique vision for something like that. <laughs> LOL. Mm-hmm. Um and and probably get away with it because there's there's very little investment cost. But yes, uh, each one of these movies, if anything, I feel one of the weaknesses of Ghost Rider is that in many ways, Mark Stephen Johnson is hitting similar script beats from Daredevil. Yeah. Like this has a very similar structure to Daredevil, at least up until I'd say about the 45 minute mark. And then this kind of goes its own direction. But the the opening of this film and, and well into act two are, are almost beat for beat Daredevil. Um, and I think that that speaks to maybe Steven Johnson being a bit out of his depth, which I think he, I think this movie was just, it was bigger than anything that he had done at this point by a massive margin, way more special effects than anything he'd been responsible for. And I I think he just was, was struggling with the weight of the project in some ways. It's a slightly Um, more polarizing franchise, I think in Marvel's history, history too. I don't. I mean, you kind of you don't really hear people being middle of the road with Ghost Rider. They either really like it or they really don't like it. <laughs> yeah, no, he's always been a fringe character. Um, I mean, honestly, people said similar things about Iron Man too. I mean, because yeah. Iron Man was a C tier character when that movie came out. I remember dozens of comic book blogs, in a way, being like, "Why would they make the first one of these Iron Man? That's this is a terrible choice. Iron Man sucks." And then you realize and your moment had arrived. Yeah, like I was like, I was like, no, you guys, you don't understand. Iron Man's a boss. Like he is awesome, and and then it, it worked out. But there were a lot of people that were like, man, Iron Man's the wrong choice. They just need to reboot X Men again, or they need to, you know, get Spider Man back. Um, gosh, I even read one. Who did they say? Because that choice even felt even more left field to me. Dude, who was it now? I. I can't remember, but it was like a character that I looked like was like, why would you, why would you make a movie about that guy? That doesn't make sense. But regardless, uh, so to get back to the failure, you know, so, so Ghost Rider sells his soul to the devil. Now he becomes the Ghost Rider and, and he judges souls and, uh, he has a couple of unique powers, right? He can change machinery. Uh, in the movie, it's really just his motorcycle. Eventually the character has been expanded that, any machinery that he rides or drives sort of becomes demonic, right? He takes it over with his demonic power, which is kind of a neat effect. Um, he also has the penance stare or the stare of judgment where he forces someone to reconcile the, the you know, flaws in their soul and it, it sort of burns them out, sort of turns them into vegetables. And uh, so that's kind of interesting. The movie plays on that one a lot but uh, it certainly is, is part of his power set. 
Um, so some of the, the failures uh, in terms of its critical response were you know, people were not – it's not like the snowman, right? Nobody's being, <laughs> nobody's being cruel, but there is certainly some disparagement here. So uh, first one I pulled was Jack Matthews from the New York Daily News. Rarely in Hollywood have so many labored so hard with so much time and such financial resources to fill a movie screen with as vast an array of spiritual gibberish – literary poppycock and pure flummery as mark stephen johnson's ghostwriter um and this one i you know he's being very specific uh and focusing on some things that i i find surprising uh, the film does have a spiritual component right uh, johnny blaze in the movie reconciles and deals with fear right sort of mastering his fear because as in his role as a stuntman, he always questions whether or not he is surviving and pulling off these feats because of his deal with the devil or if if it is his skill, right? And so he he's always trying to sort of manage his fear and, and what he's dealing with, which is an interesting angle. I don't know if it's fully exploited, but he also is fascinated with stories of the occult. He tries to understand his predicament, his circumstance. Um... So the reason I pulled this one, though, is because I think it speaks to Mark Stephen Johnson filling this movie with a lot of ideas that don't necessarily pay off and that you wouldn't necessarily need in a ghostwriter movie. But I think, again, he's trying to bring a lot to bear with the character and make him feel serious and believable when, you know, that's not necessarily going to be easy to do. Um, but I like that. I, it's always nice to see somebody use the word poppycock. You know, you, don't, you just don't see it very often. <laughs> um, so uh, Keith Phipps from the AV Club. Any potential the film had for making pop art in a contemporary manner is drained away by the familiar demands of second tier action blockbusters. Which is pretty much where this firmly lives, is in the second tier action blockbuster category. Um, again, 300 hit. About a month after this, became a much you know, bigger success. We have Transformers around this time that, of course, goes on to a huge, you know, nearly billion-dollar success. But this film had all of the pieces, all of the elements, you know, to try and pull it into that upper tier of action blockbuster, and it just doesn't quite make it. Um, but I really like his his reference to pop art here because, again, I think it speaks to a very different time as when critics were trying to understand and deal with comic book movies. Yeah. Right. They're just a very different beast now. But when, when this released, they were still, there were people who still saw the potential for comic book movies to be these incredibly iconic pieces of, of pop art, right. To lean into the popular, you know, sort of fun, Anybody can access this. Anybody can have this kind of feeling, but still push interesting ideas, which is, is what now the MCU is constantly maligned for. They've found the formula to connect with people and bring in lots of people. Done. But in connecting with people and bringing in lots of cool ideas, what are they doing with it? And, and we could argue extensively about that. Like I think there are certain Marvel films and especially the big ones towards the end, like these last couple of Avengers movies have really hung on, on very traditional, very straightforward thematic ideas like found family and, um, 
you know, loyalty, you know, these, these big concepts that movies of this type feel very comfortable treading in, right? And Ghost Rider can't really do that because that character doesn't touch in any of those worlds, right? Ghost Rider is not going to, you know, he's not going to tighten up his broken shield and say, Avengers assemble and everybody in the audience is going to be like, oh, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's not Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider is going to like flip you the bird and then put a flaming chain down your throat. <laughs> like that's, that's awesome. who Ghost Rider is. And, and so like, you know, you don't get that, that easy sort of thematic, you know, it's, you're not going to get the thumbs up at term at the end of Terminator two. Right? <laughs> you're not going to get that from Ghost Rider. You, you maybe could, but it's, it's not gonna necessarily going to land easily. So, but it's just weird to see, uh, you know, critics looking at it as like, oh man, this, there's so much potential here where, and everybody's basically given up on it now. They're like, yeah, no. Nah. Just go see him. It doesn't matter. Nobody's listening to us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, who I, I enjoy reading his reviews. I, I don't often agree with him. And he has an, a, just an awful, awful YouTube show uh, where he interviews people. And he did an interview with J.J. Abrams before Rise of Skywalker came out. And it was just ugh, it was unwatchable. Uh, but in any case, he says the real evil in this flick isn't Blackheart, Wes Bentley. The Devil's Son. It's the soul-sucking devil of modern cinema, the Hollywood formula. Ouch. Which uh, a lot of people referenced formulaicness in their reviews, uh, this being a sort of Hollywood studio massaged project, uh, which apparently it was. There were some sort of infamous quickie reshoots very, very close to the release of the film, uh, which I think mostly the ending uh the ending looks very much like reshoots to me cage's hair is is different uh, it's yeah. all sought on a sound stage uh, i think they had problems with the third act of that movie um especially because sam elliott just disappears <laughs> he, <laughs> he has like arguably the the best scene in the movie and the only reason to watch it if you don't care about ghost rider but want to see something cool and and then he just goes like, well, that was it for me. See you later, partner. And then just disappears. <laughs> it's like, whoa. So you're not even going to, like, shoot a guy? Like, I understand, like, you can't turn into Ghost Rider anymore, but you're just going to disappear. So stuff like that felt feels very, like, oh, you know, they, they just didn't know what to do. <clears throat> but uh, it definitely was something where the studio had invested a lot of money. More than likely, they they wanted to see certain things. Uh, so then we have uh, Peter Hartlab from the San Francisco Chronicle. I actually pulled a couple of different things from his review, which I thought were kind of interesting. So his his overall is uh, Ghost Rider has everything you don't want from your superhero movie, including a lack of logic, boring action, bad acting in the supporting performances, and a brutally slow 114-minute running time and cringeworthy dialogue. <clears throat> hey. <laughs> I know, right? He's hitting, he's hitting all the beats. But his review also had an interesting you know, statement uh, referencing 300. He said, The movie also unfortunately does a lot to undo the recent goodwill that Batman Begins, Sin City, A History of Violence, and V for Vendetta have built toward the underappreciated genre of films, of comic books. <laughs> uh, which, again, I, I love this time because they're all like, you know, nobody really likes these comic book movies. They're doing okay. They're figuring it out. Um, he says, if 300 doesn't kick supreme butt next month, people might just ditch graphic novel from their lingo and just start calling them comic books again. Uh, which I was like, Damn, what a strange well, 
weirdly dated thing to say. Yeah, but he was, but 300 did hit, and I guess graphic novels just never died, right? Uh, so then we have Robert Kohler from Variety. Ghost Rider would have been most fun had it been made for a dime by a Roger Corman type outfit as a quickie gothic adventure spinning Zane Grey, Faust, and Evil Knievel together. Was it not that? Um, well, we did get that, and it was called Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> and that was a, a pretty massive failure as well how um how great would that have been if it was directed by roger corman though oh i yeah i think roger corman would have handled this subject matter with i love roger I corman movies so, yeah, no. you know to hell with me <laughs> well we mentioned the fantastic four one from the 90s that was basically made just to hold on to the rights but surprisingly enough because you can find copies of that movie there it's out there you just hunt around folks and you can watch the roger corman fantastic four movie um it's really good. Like it is cheap. The costumes are questionable because they didn't have any money. The whole budget for the thing was apparently a million dollars. That's what they had for a fantastic four movie. But the movie itself is really good. Like it's a, it's a solid script. The characters are fun. You know, stuff happens. That's interesting. It's about all you could ask for. So no, I think Roger Corman would have handled something like this. Well, um, and I think Neville Dean and Taylor, with uh, Spirit of Vengeance, were in a similar situation. They had a decent budget. I mean, it was like seventy-five million or something. But you know, they they tried to sort of reboot this again with Nick Cage, and I think Spirit of Vengeance is a is a, a really solid film. Like it's problematic, but it's it's not bad. And I just thought it was funny that this guy was like, "Oh, that that should have been what they did with this character." And like, well, they they did. <laughs> it still yeah. didn't work. So. Hmm. And then one positive review, if we can call it that. Actually, it's uh, the same guy that made the uh, horse urine snow joke in the Snowman episode last week. <laughs> uh, Pete Howell from the Toronto Star. And he, and he actually thought this was okay. He said, damned if this shouldn't make your so bad it's good list. All right, so here we are. But uh, so the common problems noted in most of the reviews I read, and some of the user ones too, is that it's a formulaic blockbuster, right? Really not doing anything unique. Um, I would say there's some glimmers of that here, but it does feel sort of restrained. Uh, and there are some some definite hallmark components that are very much like Daredevil, uh, Mark Stephen Johnson's previous outing. Um, bad. It was generally either bad acting overacting or underacting like all this movie was this movie got all three of them right some people said just the acting was bad some people said the acting was over the top and then other people said that the acting was was too too under uh done and it's just like well is it which one because it can't be all of them um and uh, a lot of people mentioned nick cage just doing like a weird elvis impression <laughs> for the character which i thought was kind of fun but anyway um uh, bad jokes. Uh, a lot of people made Batman and Robin references, which I feel is unwarranted. But the, it is corny. That's like the mean. script is strange. <laughs> the script has definitely got some jokes in it. Stephen Johnson tries to be funny. Um, a lot of people forget that Mark Stephen Johnson's first project in Hollywood was Grumpy Old Men. Yeah. Um, he he wrote Grumpy Old Men and its sequel, Grumpier Old Men, and then his first directing outing was Simon Birch. Um, which is a very heartwarming film. It's uh, 
dated at this point, uh, difficult to revisit, but it, it also did well. But uh, he, he started off writing these very sort of homespun, practical comedies, right, that did very well. Right, Grumpy Old Man was a massive success, unexpectedly. And, um, you know, so I, I think he feels that he has a handle on humor, and sometimes he does, but not everything lands. Um, a lot of people just said it, it should be more, more weird. You know, there, there needs to be more strangeness for the character to work, which, again, I don't have any issues with. Uh, many people said it was boring and too long. Uh, the plot in general was corny, right? That the plot itself was was just sort of like what, and and we'll we'll get there. But there are some, you know, there's a MacGuffin, pretty obviously, um, and and just some other issues that sort of you know keep the plot from really sort of humming along. And so those were the, the main ones that I saw. And then I just had a note here of Avi Arad. <laughs> like, I, think, I think that Avi Arad and what he wants to see in movies is very different from what most people want to see in movies. I think that's really the issue. Um, I, I think his idea of what makes for a good movie is very different. Um, Ike Perlmutter very famously... Uh, who was, was Arad's business partner in Toy Biz, very famously was the one who decided that basically he never wanted to make any female comic book character toys. Um, well into, and like we're not talking it's just the beginning, but if you do look at the first wave of X-Men figures, even though the X-Men show had many female characters, the first wave did not have a ton. Um, but he believed that that as he called them, girl toys didn't sell to boys. So why would you make them and put them in the line, right? So he, these guys obviously have a very sort of defined view of the world or at least of, of what people do in terms of consuming things in the world. And and I think that that shows in a lot of Arad's projects. I agree. He has been repeatedly sidelined now. Like he is still attached to these projects because of very old deals, but he hasn't had a lot of direct control. But at this time, he did. He still had a lot of say in, in what was happening. <laughs> and I think it does show. Um, he had been kind of cut out of the Sony films at this point. He had not been heavily involved or active in, uh, you know, sort of making Spider-Man. Although supposedly he was behind Venom being in Spider-Man 3. That was entirely <sighs> uh, Sam Raimi had no desire to have Venom in no, the film. No, because he wanted to do uh, the lizard, right? Well, that's what had been seeded since one. Like Kirk Connors yeah. was in, was in Spider Man One, Sans Arm, and so his goal, from what I understand, was to sort of lead into the Sinister Six, right? Was so to introduce well, Sandman, right? So you introduce Sandman, um, you bring in. Uh, I think he wanted Vulture to be in it as well. That would be. We cool. already we already had Hobgoblin, you know, being set up. And then, you know, you pay that off with Kirk Connors being Lizard. And he would have probably been, you know, like your your first act villain, you know, like sort of making Spider-Man deal with and reconcile, you know, the two parts of his life and the damage that can be done. You know, sort of like what they did with Otto Octavius in Spider-Man 2. You know, sort of but it would have up. given Sand, uh, Sandman a, a better payoff if that had been balanced a little better. I would hope Once they so, threw yeah. venom into it, it just 
Thomas Hayden yeah. Church, such a wonderful actor. And, and they put him in that role. He didn't get to do anything. You don't see him in the freaking movie at all. He stares at a little girl in a bed. God. And then, and then gets caught by the cops. That's it. I'm still um, bitter about that. All these years later, I'm bitter about that role. But uh, Arad insisted that Venom be in the film because the fans demanded it. And and Raimi, that was very famously where Raimi first sort of broke broke rank and was like, I, I don't. And it was, from what I understand, it was a very straightforward, he's just, I don't understand that character. That's not from when I, w- I know Spider-Man. Like, I don't know any of those characters. I don't know anything about them. I don't know what to do with them. Yeah, it wasn't and, a part of the universe that he had spent all that time building. No, and it just it just didn't fit, um, which you can feel like it just feels tacked on because he doesn't care. So, you know, the, the, supposedly that was what was all around, uh, all around, and and I believe it. That, that seems like something he would do because he wanted to sell Venom toys, right? Um. So in any case, we we can well, I'm sure he'll come up again as we we go through. We'll the bitch movie, about but, him all night. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's just one of those guys. He's been around and a part of this, you know, since the beginning, basically. And uh, you know, like it or not, he's he's got his fingers in in pretty much all of these projects, even even to today, more than we would probably like to admit. Although I will agree with him, he says that his favorite film of this era was. Uh, Hulk, two thousand three, because it was he the said, worst. Yeah, he says that he he just feels that people never really understood that movie, and I would, I would probably agree. So, Mark Stephen Johnson's Ghost Arida. Um, so again, this is 07. Um, Stephen Johnson had first been pulled into Daredevil, and and found some success. Which I I will be the first to admit that I actually uh, I have a lot of affection. You for love Daredevil. Daredevil. You love I, Daredevil. I did not hate that movie. Um, one, it has a really fun uh, Foggy Nelson performance from John Favreau. This is is arguably where Favreau got hooked up with Marvel and eventually started moving forward with the Iron Man project. So I think it deserves some props for doing that in and of itself just getting Favreau into this universe and letting him start working um, and kicking that off. So, you know, I'm not going to uh, to say that it was all bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I also, I Daredevil, you know, it, Iron Man has is, is always been my favorite comic book character. I, I love him above pretty much all the others. Daredevil is a very close second. Um, I, I love Daredevil as a character. I think he's he's just the right amount of tragic. I think that he represents a, a really interesting segment of the superhero universe where they have a debilitation, something that has taken something away from them, but then they get this other you know sort of cool power, which has always been an, an interesting subset of. Uh, comic book characters for me and and arguably it's the same underpinning thing of the at least in the original form of iron man right so he gets to be iron man but only because he has these shards lodged in his heart and he has to wear the iron man chest plate in order to keep himself from dying right yeah um you know so they there's there's it's a classic comic book trope but i think daredevil is is in a specific case and then 
much like Superman has to live the lie of being Clark Kent in order to, to fit in, Matt Murdock has to live the lie of being blind, right? He is blind, but he's not blind. He's more than that. And I, I really, I, I just, I've always liked that about the character. And so, you know, Stephen Johnson kind of came really out of nowhere. Again, his only movie before this was, was uh, Simon Birch. So I, well, I guess, no, I take it back. He also did, um, well, he wrote, he didn't direct, but he wrote Jack Frost <laughs> that year. Yes, yes, that glorious uh, father-son uh, family vehicle where Michael Keaton turns into a snowman. That was also Mark Stephen Johnson, so you're, you're welcome, world. But one thing I think Mark Stephen Johnson does super well is, is I think he's actually got a really good eye for casting. I think he... Because, frankly, Daredevil, the most inspired thing in Daredevil was the casting of Marco Clark Duncan as Kingpin. It's brilliant. Um, And perhaps, and it it made me, as much as I like the Netflix Daredevil TV show, and I I do think it's the best of those series, uh, Punisher's pretty solid, sort of. Iron Fist is hot garbage. Um, Jessica Jones is, is good, but a very difficult watch for a bunch of reasons. Um, but Daredevil, I think is the, is the best of them. And if anything, I was sad when they, they just went back to a, I mean, I love Vincent D'Onofrio and he does a great job with the character, but I was kind of sad that they went back to just a big hulking white dude as, as Kingpin. Cause I thought that Michael Clark Duncan had killed it and opened up that character for, for new possibilities. Um, you know, so I, I think that, uh, you know, Ben Affleck was very early in his career at this point, and, and obviously, you know, I know a lot of people don't like Ben Affleck. I don't have those issues with him. Like, I know we've talked about it on here before with, you know, his portrayal of Batman and stuff. I, I think Ben Affleck's a watchable actor. He can be a bit smarmy. He definitely has moments of smarm in Daredevil, uh, especially that stupid teeter-totter fight oh my god that is bad that's not a good scene uh but i mean this is also the guy that cast colin farrell when he was a basic unknown um you know he had certainly done a few things prior to daredevil but nothing super substantial in most people's eyes um i think he had been in he'd been in minority report and tiger land at that point and so people kind of knew him as that and and that was kind of it. Uh, I think he did the recruit that year, so like that came out at the same time. But you know, so he basically helped sort of you know bring Colin Farrell to the fore. So Daredevil was was solid, and it made a decent amount of money, right? They made it for a little, you know, not very much. It, it made its money back. People were satisfied with its performance, not enough to get a, a true sequel. Although there was a sort of side sequel focusing on Elektra, which was not Daredevil. good, um, but you know. Whatever. But I, I liked it, right? I liked uh, how it approached it. And so when, when Ghost Rider was getting ready to come out, I was pretty excited. I was like, okay, it's from the Daredevil guy. That was decent. Um, especially the director's cut of Daredevil, which has a, a lot more like foggy and, and mad stuff, which is really good. But So I, I was very excited about Ghost Rider. And then when they attached Nick Cage, knowing that he's this massive fan, like he's one of the few people in the world that actually has a copy of... Um, 
the first appearance of Superman, right? Like he's a huge comic book guy. I was like, all right, this, this is going to be pretty solid. And, uh, you know, we went opening weekend and it was okay. I, I didn't, I, I did not love it. I didn't. Um, but there were moments in it that stuck in my brain and that I really, really enjoyed. And, and at the time, given what kind of comic book stuff we were getting, that was enough. <laughs> at least as a, as a comic book fan. I remember walking out of Iron Man and looking at my wife and saying, my God, what a time to be alive. And like legitimately, like those are the words that came out of my mouth. I did not say that coming out of Ghost Rider. But that no. doesn't mean it's terrible. Because uh, it isn't. It doesn't mean you had a bad time. No, no. It just... These movies are are difficult to navigate under the best of circumstances. And I get the feeling that this was not the best of circumstances. Because Mark Stephen Johnson, the next movie he made was in 2010, and it was a light rom-com starring Kristen Bell. Yeah. So I don't get the impression that he was anxious to dabble in this kind of filmmaking again. Um, and pretty much everything that he's done since has been much smaller and and much more focused. So I don't know if this was a really good experience for him. I'm kind of thinking it wasn't. But in any case, the the film itself opens with, again, I, what I think is a series of reshoots that sort of lay the groundwork for the core story, which is that the devil needs a contract. A contract stolen by an earlier ghostwriter in the late 1800s involving a small town called San Vengonza. Which, I mean, do you think at one point in the script it was San Vengeance? And then they just were like, <laughs> we can't we can't just say that. We've got to call it something else, you guys. Because <laughs> that's kind of what I think it was. San Evil Satan Town. <laughs> yes, Evil Satan Town USA slash Southwest. Um, <laughs> but so San Venganza, where this ghostwriter betrays the devil and refuses to hand over the contract because it would grant him too much power. And here well, he, is where... He is where... already the devil, but okay. Exactly. I... <laughs> You know, because they haven't established at this point in the Ghost Rider mythos that it's not the devil. Yet. It is not the devil, right? Um, so we've talked before about the various, you know, pillars of the Marvel universe, and and as I said, Ghost Rider is is a window into another one of those pillars. As is Morbius, as is Blade, this dark underworld the the underbelly of the marvel universe literally the the hell that underpins it and these these hell characters are all you know sort of based on on you know demonic figures a lot of them from christian uh you know christian storytelling and 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 you know the idea of the christian demon and and the devil but they are not those characters that's right. There again. This is a time, you know, mostly in the '70s and '80s, where you know people are, are pushing and, and sort of asking interesting questions about horror those films. Were having their day. I mean, that had a huge impact on, mm -hmm. on comic. I mean, culture. It is. It is difficult to overstate how much of an impact The Exorcist had on culture in the early 1970s <laughs> and and how fascinated the world became with all things demonic Satanic I mean panic. I mean if you look at 
I mean, basically, exorcism as a practice was dead. I mean, if you if you look at the history of of exorcism within, especially the Catholic Church, which is really the only one that had it like set up as a as a rite, a ritual that could be performed, like any of them will tell you, like it, one hadn't been performed in decades, and then the exorcist hits, and now you've got people requesting them, <laughs> like oh, I need one of these for you know my cousin Terry. Or whatever, and and so like it, it in many ways it it set off this new fascination with all things antichrist and demonic. Um, you know, this is when we get the Omen fear, series of films coming out. Like it, it was, it's just it was a big thing. And and Marvel, if one thing can be learned from their history, it's that they were always attempting to capitalize on the big thing. Yeah. Right. If there was something popular, oh, kung fu films are popular. Here's Shang Chi. Right. You know, it's <laughs> like. Okay, thank you. Um, oh, we're really fascinated with the quote-unquote Orient. Uh, well, here's a villain called the Mandarin, right? Like, that's what they did, and, and they did it frequently, and, and this is another example. So the, the devil in this universe is not the devil. They use that term interchangeably in the film, but he is Mephistopheles, who is just one of these, you know, hell characters, and he specifically is the one that goes, makes deals with humans, you know, makes them sign over their souls, gives them a little something, tricks them, and then takes their soul. That's what he does. And it, it works really well because it's, you know, it's trying to place him as a character in the world and then recontextualize those deal with the devil stories um, as being, you know, his doing, this character's doing. Um, right, there's specific imagery of the crossroads, like the, the, yeah. you know, the Robert Johnson crossroads being used here, that he's that guy. Um, you know, so they're they're playing in that universe as much as they can. Um, he specifically is, is one of a group of characters called the Hell Lords, and they're they're all demons that have their own sort of respective sections of Hell, if you want to call them that. Um, and and basically all of them use the the term Satan or the devil interchangeably, but they're all unique. They all do specific things, um, you know. And uh, Mephistopheles is is just one of these hell lords, you know. And and it's all of the other names. Right? There's Beelzebub. There's Asmodeus. Um, I mean, just Lucifer is another one. Wow. Um, and then uh, technically, if I remember correctly, uh, Dormammu from Doctor Strange is is one of these hell lords, but he just occupies another dimension, you know, the dark dimension. That makes uh, sense. As they call it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think, and that honestly in the current MCU, that may be as close as we ever get is that these are other figures from the dark dimension or something like that. We may never see any of these because they're they're mostly direct references to to satanic or devil figures from all different world cultures and mythologies. And and I personally I don't see the MCU touching these with a ten foot pole. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if they do, it'll be very very heavily sanitized um, for for obvious you know multicultural branding reasons, <laughs> you know, but. You know, regardless, you know, so it's it's important that Mephistopheles is is not the all powerful devil. Uh, and Spirit of Vengeance even pushes that further away that that he's you know they give him an actual name like he's Rourke or whatever. 
you know, so they're, they're trying desperately to sort of separate those things out. But so the, the original Ghost Rider was supposed to deliver this contract so that uh, Mephistopheles would gain uh, a great deal of power and, and he reneged on his deal and disappeared. And, and that's pretty much our opening, narrated fantastically by Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott, the star of this film for me. He, he truly is. Um, if, if there is a weakness to this film, it is that there is not enough He's Sam not Elliott enough. in it. And uh, I remember when, you know, leaving the theater, um, especially after the sort of bombastic, you know, sort of awesome scene leading up to the final confrontation oh. with him and Ghost Rider, uh, or Nick Cage's Ghost Rider at least, I remember leaving the theater, turning to my wife and saying, that wasn't great. I just want to see a whole movie with Sam Elliott. Oh my God. <laughs> Ghost so Rider. Cool. Like I just want a whole movie of that because he's fantastic. But he delivers our, our background basically. And again, this feels like a reshoot. It feels like something the studio added because they didn't feel there was enough context for the overall story because almost all of those settings are the same settings used in the lead up to the final confrontation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm betting that they were all sort of added after the fact, but then we very quickly move to modern life and, and, you know, Johnny blaze who is a, a low level. I, I mean, I'd say sort of state fair tier. He's a carny daredevil. Yeah. I mean, he's basically a carny with his dad, Bart, uh, Barton blaze, Bart blaze, <laughs> Hell of it. which wasn't he the original, one because Johnny Blaze was not necessarily. I don't know if Johnny was Blaze the first. was the original of this Ghost Rider, and and Carter Slade was actually the original original Ghost Rider. Original original Ghost Rider, right? The one from the sixties. And and so uh, you know, basically, we get a bunch of sequences of of him and his dad. Really, not much. Uh, you know, quite frankly, I think we could make an argument here that if this is what they do, I, that's really just the bare minimum of being a stunt. Yeah. I mean, they basically do a little hop through flaming. Ring of fire. That's their (laughs) act, you know. Um, But these scenes feel a bit empty, right? They feel like it's just kind of underbaked, but they're, they're supposed to be, you know, working at a, at a carnival, a big top and, and just sort of making it, um, (laughs) you know, I, I don't think one thing that's nice about Mark Steven Johnson movies is there's very little subtlety. Pretty much everything that you need to know or want to know is going to be pointed out for you repeatedly. And it's kind of nice, right? It makes them a bit more all ages than I would expect. Uh, similar things happen with Daredevil, right, as he's going through. Quite frankly, in Daredevil, there's you know the great opening sequence of him kind of doing his morning routine, prepping his wallet, you know, just sort of establishing here is, is what his life is like. And, and some similar things happen here. So his dad's a smoker. So guess what? His dad has cancer. Next, his dad smokes. Um, and we get the feeling right off the bat that, that him and Johnny are, are not really on the same page, right? Johnny's got a different set of goals. Uh, his dad is... He's got a sweetheart. That's right. He's got a girl, a girl of his dreams. He don't want to be no carny. He doesn't want to be a carny for that girl. He needs something bigger. Uh, his dad coughs a lot, so... You know, we don't know, but his dad might be sick. It's possible. But even as he's coughing, he reaches for another sweet, sweet pack of Marlboros. He's in flavor country. (laughs) That's right. Flavor country knows no bounds. 
And, and you know, there are several scenes of Johnny, like, throwing his cigarettes away to try and get him to stop and, and things. So, you know, there's conflict there. I will say that the young version that they picked here, the young Johnny... I is, love that is actually, He's pretty solid here, especially as a sort of young Nick Cage stand-in, which Nick Cage is a very, you know... He's a very unique set of facial features, right? He has a very, you know, sort of unique look. And, and they found an actor that, that fit pretty well not exactly but pretty well so when they do transition from this johnny to nick cage johnny it's not as jarring as it could have been um but the real like oh my gosh casting is the girl that they found to double as young eva mendes that is creepy how close she looks and i'm sure a little bit of its makeup you know adding in the beauty mark and all that stuff but uh, she is completely believable as a, you know, 10 years younger, 12 years younger, uh, even Mendes. But in any case, Johnny is is ready to, to move on, right? This is not the life that he envisions for himself, you know, sort of you know, being a carny with his dad in the circus, even though his dad has big dreams for their, their act and where they're eventually going to go. And so he hatches a plan with uh, young Eva Mendes to to depart, to run away, because she's going to be sent away uh, regardless. Now setting up the, the choice that he has to make. So when he arrives home that night, after setting the deal up, he discovers that, bum bum bum, his dad does indeed have cancer that is spreading. So he is, is going to die soon, and, and Johnny is obviously now conflicted about leaving his father alone and so of course this is when the deal arrives and Mephistopheles shows up and here's where I think Mark Steven Johnson does really good work right he his camera work is not incredible his shot setups are, are fairly mundane all things considered they're very functional right this is all of his movies feel very functional it is the coverage that you would expect to get like <laughs> in a movie like this right he's not really doing anything out of the ordinary once he gets into the special effects shots he he sort of pushes uh there are a couple of really nice um scenes in this later with like ghost rider you know climbing up the side of buildings and stuff but a lot of the the character interactions you know the the you know the the stuff that you need to just make a movie go, like the stuff that must be there for movies to work, characters talking, that kind of stuff. Very typical. So Mephistopheles approaches Johnny with uh, the deal, the bargain, as we might expect. And uh, the really cool thing is that Mephistopheles is played by Peter Fonda. And of Easy Rider fame. That's right. So perfect of, for this. Exactly. There's a lot. You know, you've got uh, you've got Sam Elliott for the Western cred. Right, because yeah. you you need that for Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider is a modern, heavily modified Western story. You know, heading out over the plains in your motorcycle, and then you've got Peter Fonda bringing the motorcycle cred, right? The 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 motorcycle culture cred, and he he's really doing a great job. He doesn't get a ton to do in this movie. He's really only in four or five scenes, but he he feels very believable and so much so that even though uh, ghost rider spirit of vengeance is a basically a soft reboot of ghost rider like they were opening it up to sort of go in a new direction and not be beholden to this film at all he was the one figure that i kind of wished 
would have been brought forward because uh, they kind of replace him with uh, uh, Sierra and Hines yeah. in uh, in that film. But I think Peter Fonda is just kind of perfect as this sort of Old West representation of, of the devil of, of Mephistopheles. And uh, there's a couple, you know, as he's passing one of the, the tent flaps, there's a lightning strike and you see the shadow of a, I, a demonic figure. I mean, that kind I of I love cheesy fun. shit like that. I exactly. love when movies have fun with these characters because they're not pulling any punches. This is, for all intents and purposes, the devil. And why yeah. not? Yeah. Why not be comic booky about it? That's that something that would have absolutely happened as a panel in a comic book. Absolutely, and I think again, I, I I appreciate that this movie is willing to indulge in in the schlock part of it, right? You know, like well, for example, we we rewatched all the original you know Batman series films, the pre Batman Begins, and. Batman and Robin is not a good movie. We we all know this. This is not this is funny not news though. to anyone. But it's it's really funny. It's super goofy. It leans into all of these things that that at one time were synonymous with comic books, right? Yeah. Before we got serious with them. And I there are parts of me that kind of miss that. Right, because there is room for that in comics, and, and it should be there. Right, there is absolutely nothing wrong with leaning and you know, sort of hanging your hat on. Let's just be a little bit goofy here, um, and and it, and it just kind of doesn't. I think. Well, as a as a side note, I think it's one of the reasons why the new, the newer Hellboy, just didn't work. Oh. Don't even um, get me started on that bullshit. I know, I know. It, I almost was... suggested that for this this podcast. I was like, you know, if I really wanted to hate on something, but I didn't feel like hating so much. I wanted to. Like... Yeah, we'll we'll do it at some point because I, I think it's worth discussing. Um, because it, again, there there are glimmers of could have been pretty cool here, but it just it takes itself so seriously, and it's had it has its its head so far up its own butt that it makes it impossible to connect with or or even like Hellboy, Hellboy of all the things to take seriously. Right. And that's one of the things that, even though I think Del Toro may skew a bit too far in the other direction sometimes in his films, where they are just sort of like doofy and lovable, that is a better choice than taking Hellboy dead serious. Yeah. Um, if you're going to adapt it. He made jokes right? in the comic about exploding cows. Like that's not, that's not played for serious. You <laughs> right. can't do that. Like, and that's, that may be part of the thing. If you come to Hellboy and, and projects like Hellboy because of this sort of dark tone, which Mignola absolutely captures with his art and you don't pay attention, you don't get that the reason why Hellboy is so enjoyable is because he's constantly cracking jokes while he's doing these incredible things. Yeah. Right? I mean, they, they, that is the character. And and they tried to do that in the movie, and it just doesn't work. You know, but this movie here is is investing in the schlock potential a little bit, right? Ghost Rider is an inherently sort of, I'm not going to say a silly character. He's a dark character, but 
the idea of a stunt bike driver inhabited by a demon of hell and judging people as he rides around on his flaming motorcycle. Exactly. Who manifests as a skeleton that rides a motorcycle. Yeah, I mean like that. that. If you can't see the underlying goofiness of that, you're you're just not paying attention. I don't know how to help you. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't explain that to you. But, uh, you know, regardless, the devil tricks Johnny and he does heal his father of cancer as promised, but then uh, has him die in a stunt bike accident. So it's all for nothing, right? The devil gets his due, as always. Uh, And then we get the crossroads scene, which actually is executed fairly well. I I like this. They kind of shot this uh, during the golden hour, so everything's just lit perfectly. And Johnny has his his confrontation where the devil says, you know, one day I'm going to come and and this will be, you know, you will be this for me. Uh, I need you alive. And again, Peter Fonda's doing great. I think the crossroads imagery is very cool. It's nice to tie that back to this, you know, sort of southern mythology that we have here in the United States of, uh, you know, meeting a stranger on a country road in the middle of the night and not being able to you know, maybe explain the encounter. It's, it's a good feeling. Um, it's a nice reinterpretation also, of the Faust legend. I've always right. Thought. Which is, which is at the heart of, of Ghost Rider and, and any story that really deals with, you know, making a deal with this, this sort of powerful force. But, you know, Johnson here, he, he has him do the, you know, Nick Cage is like this point throughout this whole movie um, where he like points at a character, and it's a very kind of Elvis move. I think that's why a lot of people see when it, it as is, like Elvis impersonating. It is a daredevil thing too. That was a pretty famous go-to panel for for not did I say daredevil? I meant Ghost Rider. Ghost um, mm-hmm. That was a pretty famous like go-to panel for Ghost Rider was to have him pointing, you know, mm-hmm. this big dramatic it's, it's judgment thing. Right. Like it looked cool. Yeah. Like you can and tell it, Nicolas Cage was excited to be doing that. And it's also, it, in some ways, it's calling your shot, right? Because yeah. that's what daredevils do, right? You, you you set up your trick, you call your shot. Here's what I'm going to do. And it, it's very much that. But they even have this this young version of Nick Cage do it to establish it as part of the character, you know, calling the devil out. And uh, then he decides to disappear, right? Instead of running away with Roxy, um, she, you know, we get this nice scene of them in the rain making eye contact at their their tree which he goes up there and later. then rides away exactly like, I, the, I went there just to reject you the ultimate you know just screw you i'm gonna I'm, i've got the motorcycle i've got my bags packed but it looks like i'm just no. rejecting you <laughs> <laughs> just we're not gonna do this not you and i and then of course we transition to uh our modern uh johnny blaze so I'm going to go ahead and say that that first sequence, you know, the the setup, the origin story, uh, very similar to the setup origin story that we get in Daredevil, uh, as we see young Matt Murdock blinded and then training and learning and then the death of his father. You know, it's it's a really similar sequence, and I think that Johnson, uh, <laughs> I, I did not do it, I should have, but I was going to to go back and watch Daredevil and actually time it and see how long. <laughs> The setups work because I'm I'm gonna hazard a guess that it's about the same amount of time. Um, but so grown up Johnny Blaze, now played by Nick Cage, is is a stunt legend, a superstar, right? And he's jumping semi truck trailers in a I don't know a stadium or something, 
which I love the shots of the crowd in these movies. There's really only two, two sequences, but they shot this in Australia, right? So they, they had to dress these people to look this way. You know, these were decisions being made. It wasn't like they were at Talladega or something. And they just sort of like filmed the crowd and said, hey, y'all want to be in a movie? And then people are like, yeah. <laughs> y'all want to be in uh, a movie? Y'all want to be in a movie with Nicolas Cage? Uh, no, these are all like Australian extras. And they've been dressed to look like American, you know. Bring your white trashiest outfits and right. we'll put you in a film about Ghost Rider. <laughs> there's a lot of wife beaters. There's a lot of American flag hats. You know, just just that kind of stuff. Um and and it 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 you know I mean and it's, the music it's, like crazy it's, train they're it's playing just, crazy oh, train oh god it's so nostalgic for a time that I'm not even a part of. I mean you know Ghost Rider does look like a, a sort of marginal reject from an Iron Maiden cover or a Megadeth cover or something. So I, I think that you know hard seventies rock is absolutely like the soundtrack. Geo-Cities page is what he looks like. Fire and skulls <laughs> Fire everywhere. everywhere. So I'm perfectly okay with, you know, Crazy Train being the soundtrack of this movie, but it just, it feels so, it just feels so artificially constructed to be the rural South America, South of America, that it just kind of, it reads as a little silly, uh, which again, I, I, I think that's part of it. I think it's trying to be like, this is, this is who Johnny Blaze appeals to uh, at this point. And that's he, not inaccurate. <laughs> No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, if you think about the, you know, obviously we don't have a huge, like, you know, stunt. You know, there is no evil Knievel today. You know, there are people who certainly do, like, incredible tricks. A lot of them live on YouTube now. Um, <laughs> the you know, Paul brothers are the modern day evil <laughs> oh, Knievel. God. Oh, God. Jesus. Help us. What have we become? Um you know, so we don't really have a modern analog for what he's trying to do. And, and if anything, I think that that's kind of a cool thing that Mark uh, Stephen Johnson tries to do here is to say, OK, if we did have somebody doing evil Knievel type stunts with the technology and and the availability of, of stuff that we could do today, what would they be doing? Right. Because, you know, evil Knievel's claim to fame was he drive, you know, I jumped like 10 buses or something. And this dude's like, I'm going to jump a football field, <laughs> which is just ridiculous. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it, it feels, you know, kind of silly and over the top in a way that that kind of works for what we're doing here. Um, and I, I do love the shot of the hit because as, as he makes this first stunt, he he messes it up. And we get our, our first of him, He as he makes his jump, he closes his eyes, he tells himself that you can't live in fear, has flashbacks to moments of his life, and, and in this one, he wrecks his bike and goes over the top of it, and then smashes his helmet into his front tire, and I really cool like that shot. shot. It's a really cool, cool shot, shot, man, because it looks bad. Like, it doesn't, you know, it it probably is some CG replacement, but there's, there's an actual stunt guy going over those handlebars and getting hit in the face with a tire. And it's a cool looking shot. Uh, so cage survives miraculously. So once again, he's left to question, you know, am I alive because of my skill because of me or am I alive because of the devil and the deal that I made? And we, as the audience are sort of meant to, to care about that. And I'm not sure we do. Uh, I think, 
that's an idea that probably should have been more directly addressed. Um, we do get our, our little X Games reference, which is is probably the only, you know, if we're talking about modern people doing cool stuff on bikes, the X Games is where that's happening. But again, it's nothing to the scale of, of what we saw culturally as like an evil Knievel figure. But we get our first... This is a movie that likes its character quirks. And we get our first sort of odd character quirk with Johnny in that he doesn't drink. Uh, everybody else on the tour bus as they're they're taking off is, is, you know, slamming back some cold ones, playing some poker. He likes Johnny. <clears throat> but he drinks, eats, chows down on, I don't know what you want to say, uh, red and and yellow jelly beans from martini glass. <laughs> Which it's bold, weird. It's a bold choice. Um again, I, I if that was in the script, awesome. I kind of have the feeling that that is all Nick Cage. Because I don't right. <laughs> I don't think Mark Steven Johnson knows what to do with it. Uh, and it's just sort of there. It just sits there that that is what he does. And it's consistent. So I, I like that part of it. <clears throat> I kind of like that and, Nicolas Cage was trying to do something unconventional with the character. You know, he yeah, didn't just play exactly. the tough guy. He, he didn't just play the the absolutely bog standard action hero. Right. He. I think the idea is, is that he's haunted. Right. As a person, he is is looking over his shoulder at something that nobody else understands or sees. And and I like that. I think playing Johnny Blaze is this more sort of uh, internally focused, quite frankly, a, a sort of thinking figure, right, where he's trying to understand his place in the universe given these circumstances. I think that's very interesting, right? Instead of him just embracing the situation, which, you know, he, he gets to that point in the film where he just sort of accepts it and sort of tries to run with it. But, you know, I, I'm much more, I, I think it is an interesting take to try and have him be sort of deeply contemplative about his role. And and that kind of gets started here, but whether or not it lands is, is a question. But, so we get a, you know, Again, this film was sort of accused of having some hammy, corny dialogue, and we get our, our first bit of that here. So his his tour manager, his road manager, roadie, I don't I don't know what you want to call him. I, I don't I, know what that position would be. Uh is played, played by the lovely Donald Logue. That's right. The the lovable, the the teddy bear like, the the bearded and slightly overweight Donald Logue. That we I love. love Donald Logue. I love when he's in movies, I love when he plays these little bit roles. And I really liked Mac in this movie. I don't know. It was just something. There's just something really familiar and appealing about that character. And that's something he brings to a lot of his roles. Absolutely. Um, again, if we're going to talk about Mark Stephen Johnson and the the sort of hallmark qualities of his, his two superhero films, uh, he very much is the Foggy Nelson of this film. Yeah. That is meant to ground the main character who does have these very high-minded concerns that take them out of the sort of everyday flow of life, he's meant to sort of pull him back in. And and it doesn't always work. I think he is taken out of the film in a way that, that reeks of late-game reshoot 
and we just I need to deal with, with his character because we don't know what to do with him and and I feel like that's a, a huge mistake. I watched that with my I watched this with my kids um and and they were just shocked. They were like, "Whoa. What happened?" right? Because he kind of just dies unceremoniously. I mean, we we see it, but it all happens basically off-screen like he just is dead. And and we take no time to mourn him. You know, I think he I think Nicolas Cage is like, oh Mac. And that's it. That's it. This is like, okay, well, he's dead now. And even they were like, Wow, that was really sudden. It seems like he should have we should have done more with him. And it's like Seems like we should have been sadder about that. Yeah, it seems like somebody should have mentioned it. Um but Mac is is that voice of reason and, and he says you know, hey man, you got an angel looking out for you. And then Nicolas Cage turns to the window. There's a flash of lightning. You see a skull reflected back, and he's like, "Maybe it's something else." <laughs> and, and what was funny was that I was watching with my daughter, and, and and right after Max says it, there's like a long beat. Right? It's not like your typical comedy beat. It's like three of those. He's like, "He's like, you got an angel looking out for you," and and she just looks at me. He's like, "It's a demon." And I was like, <laughs> and I just looked at her and I went, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> like, you, you got it. That's the, that's the, that's the joke. That's the right? joke. That's, you know, that's, that's comedy. Um, and, and then of course he turns to the window and then just delivers the line that she just said to me. And I was like, see, he's just got to wait another second. They're getting to it. Um, and then we get one of many sort of weird transitions uh, in this movie, because as we the tour bus passes, and I don't know if this is meant to say that this is literally happening in a spot where their tour bus is passing. I think we're supposed to kind of think that, but I have no idea. Uh, I will say the, this film's ge- geography is bad. It really it's, is. It's real bad. There, you don't ever get a sense of where anything is happening. No, I, we're supposed. We, we see several signs that say that we are in Texas. But they all say "Welcome to Texas." <laughs> We're constantly on the border. We're just constantly traveling the border of Texas, apparently, and and it 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 is very confusing because you know you only see the "Welcome to Texas" sign when you cross the border into the state. Then there are other signs that say "Welcome to <laughs> every forty city." Feet, there's a "Welcome to Texas." Yeah, sign just Texas is very Texas. proud of its welcoming nature, so they're going to have signs everywhere. <laughs> we know you've been here for hours. But we're so glad you're here. <laughs> That's right. Don't want you to forget Welcome. how happy we are as Texans to have you present. And of course, I, I think originally what it feels like is that is that Johnny has avoided coming back to Texas as part of his career. But on this tour that he's on, I think he, I think originally in the script, my guess is that he has been offered this, this opportunity to, to be in this big football stadium back in Texas. And so he's going back to Texas for the first time in a long time. I think that's supposed to be the idea. But the movie never lets you know that. But no, it's, it's not discussed. It's not an issue. We never know what city in Texas they're in. I'm sure somebody you know out there knows just based on the the geography of the the, you know, the layout of the city and the buildings and stuff, which one it is probably Houston or something. I don't know, or maybe it's Who supposed cares? to be. An <laughs> it doesn't matter. Texas. But I mean, but so like, or or maybe he's always been in Texas because this is like ostensibly where his home is. So maybe he's coming home to Texas. <laughs> we but really then, don't know. But we don't know. It's never explained. We don't know. And then I guess we're supposed to assume that he's doing this massive trick 
the the stadium jump that he's getting ready to get set up for with uh, the cars that Donald Logue is saying he shouldn't jump because it's too dangerous. Like, in the town where he lives, I guess? So that seems strange, that he would come home to do this massive thing. Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and so they're in Texas. But anyway, we zoom out of the bus, or the bus passes, and then we we start zooming across the landscape. And there are skull clouds and lightning strikes. And, and Wes Bentley just <laughs> starts Wes Bentleying it up. And, like, he is the worst actor. He, he is definitely, in, in my humble opinion, I think he is the weakest component of this film. Um, there have been projects in which I think Wes Bentley was fine. Uh, I think he was okay in that first Hunger Games movie. Uh, he was he fine died. in American Beauty. He was, he was fine in American Beauty. That is very true. Um, but here, hmm. I don't know. He did find the bag, and it was a beautiful and surreal moment of of human existence. Uh, just watching that bag float around. But so, one of the issues with this movie, and again, I would say in general with Mark Stephen Johnson's films, is that they struggle with tonal inconsistency. Yeah, and Big this time. one more than anything, because again, Ghost Rider is a horrific character. Um, being Ghost Rider or seeing Ghost Rider would be terrifying right and this is a similar line that that you know blade in the blade series by the time this movie had come out walks much better right because it, it just leans into being a horror film it's like that's what we are we're a horror film with some superhero elements and this movie is a superhero film with some horror elements and the horror elements are bad because um, Wes Bentley as he's Wes Bentleying his way across the desert it just does a jump cut apropos of nothing to his screwed up demon face with just needle teeth. <laughs> and, and it just goes <laughs> for no reason. And then it doesn't ever do that again. Uh, and so he's headed to a saloon in uh, the middle of a soundstage. Uh, and apparently there are bikers inside like hell's angels or hell's bikers or something. Like, I'm sure it's supposed to be another pun where it's like mean only, bikers. It's only the mean bikers, biker game. It's only the bikers from hell to get to be in here. West Bentley and West Bentley's like, I, I don't care about that. I'm going to kill all you hell bikers. Even Look out for my gang. You know, They're called the bad guy bikers. <laughs> yeah. Bad guy biker game. Um, and so he comes in, he confronts, you know, there's a, there's a security guard apparently <laughs> in the middle of nowhere that's only populated by one group. And, uh, you know, so we see Wes Bentley's power, which is later badly explained as being able to insert brimstone in your body, <sighs> which seems like a sort of silly power to have if we're being honest, but he can, I, I originally, when I, when I was watching this in the theater, I thought that all that he could convert people into some kind of zombie <laughs> that would then become like a zombie army for him. Like that's what I expected to have happen because that would have worked a little better. Like. And and that doesn't happen. He just kind of walks into the bar after sort of killing this guy. Uh, then we we cut back to Johnny and and see him and Mac sort of you know getting him set up in his house, which of course is like an awesome you know warehouse industrial loft full of motorcycles and. And books, books about, about Satan. Books about Satan and exorcism and, you know, everything else that you would want. 
and uh, and then we get our second strange character quirk, which is that Johnny Blaze listens to the Carpenters to unwind, and uh, and apparently has a button on his security system to do this for him, <laughs> and so he starts playing the Carpenters um, and eating some jelly beans. Uh, which he pours out of an orange juice carafe into, <laughs> into his martini glass. So he just has them set up it's in his just kitchen. It's so weird. It's just so strange. And and again, I kind of love it though. I mean, this this feels like somebody. This feels like somebody trying to make a character feel really unique and special. I think and if it, any of those moments had been in Iron Man the very next year, they would have hit. Big. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and I mean, in Iron Man, he does have his share of like weird things. But I think what Robert Downey Jr. was able to do, Nick Cage is playing them basically straight and not as problems. Yeah. Right. Like what you need is that marginal acknowledgement that, yeah, I know this is weird, but this is who I am. Right. So like the whole thing that Tony Stark did, I guess it was really more in Iron Man 2. It was kind of a component of one. Where he like doesn't let people touch him, right? <laughs> Which you can tell is, is probably really just a Robert Downey Jr. thing. Like, I don't want you touching me. But they just kind of play it off as a like, yeah, I know it's weird. Just just deal with it. You know, like don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are these are definitely things that in a movie of this type, you're not necessarily going to see as, as completely implausible. But they need to be sold better. Because they're just sort of... They just lay there. And another one happens here in a few minutes that I think is hilarious, but I want to save it uh, to talk about it then because it speaks to a much larger issue in this movie and its name is Eva Mendes. <laughs> and 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 the, the, subhead, the, the subtitle under Eva Mendes is I Need Something to Do. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because uh, she has nothing to do in this movie um, basically at any point. And, and that's an unfortunate thing because I think she should. But, you know, so basically we get another scene with Mac and Johnny, with, with you know, Mac trying to get Johnny to, to be sensible, to take care of himself, to, to let go of all of these, like, strange, you know, concerns about demons and, and, and whatnot. We find out that uh, Johnny says several times in this movie that he watches a lot of TV, which, again, feels like a cage thing. Uh, and apparently he loves stuff about monkeys. <laughs> Um, because really in, in rapid succession on the bus, he says, um, there's some special on the discovery channel about howler monkeys, howler monkeys that he wants to watch. Hey, to turn Mac, turn it back to that story about howler monkeys. Um, and then he, he's watching a monkey, uh, or a chimpanzee really, uh, do karate. <laughs> and then he watches my favorite Disney cartoon. That's right. Time. Skeleton the dance. Skeleton dance. I see you yeah. know which one I watched. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Skeleton Dance, man. We watched that all the time when we were kids. Uh, creepy, creepy, well, not not that creepy, but a fairly creepy old uh, Disney cartoon. Uh, one of the early Disney era. Uh, it's probably on Disney Plus now, I would have to think. It's also collection. on YouTube if you want to find it there. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, that makes sense. Um, but he watches the Skeleton Dance, which of course is just a, a sort of we're we're setting up for you know who he is about to become because there's a, a nice little skull moment there um but then we bounce very again i don't know why these scenes had to be divided in terms of the the structural editing but uh 
So we get the scene with Johnny, um, and then we cut back to Wes Bentley in the bar. But now everyone in the bar is dead. And Mark Steven Johnson has no idea how to shoot a scene for a horror movie <laughs> um, at all. Uh, he doesn't know how to structure it. He doesn't know how to move the camera to make it work. And so we, we basically pull push in on the waitress we saw at the very beginning, you know, hiding behind the bar. And, you know, she sort of is looking through a crack in the bar and she doesn't see anybody. So she stands up to leave and, and Wes Bentley kills her. And the, the entire sequence is just edited without any, no real, no real sense of how to generate a, a scare. Right. Um, one thing I will say is that as a, as a horror aficionado, which I know we haven't talked about a ton of horror on this, this podcast yet, but we, we will, um, cause there's tons of really bad horror out there. <laughs> an unbelievable um, amount. An unbelievable amount when you think about it. But, you know, we are, we are kind of spoiled by modern horror directors who really do know how to architect these types of scenes. Uh, I guess I'm mostly thinking of James Wan. Because James Wan is is probably most directly responsible for the current state even of have the some, horror industry. You even have some some lighter directors like Mike Flanagan who are doing really interesting stuff who can still oh, sure. deliver those really scary moments. But that's yeah. hard to do. Like we don't, no, you know, in the age hard. of found footage horror films, we have learned to accept the bare minimum. <laughs> And then it's Absolutely. really special when we have a director who actually takes their time, does something exciting. Yeah, Flanagan's a great uh, a great example of a, a director. You know, James Wan, I think, is his real skill is the the execution of setup and jump scare. Like that is what James Wan does better than pretty much anybody else. Flanagan is much more broadly accessible, and I think much more capable in terms of actual tension and scares. Um, you know, which uh, the haunting of Hill House, uh, the haunting of Bly Manor. They dropped the trailer for that last week. And that looks yeah. really good. Um, and uh, and Doctor Sleep. Uh, I I loved Doctor Sleep. I was shocked by how much I loved Doctor. I love Sleep. Ian McGregor. Um, I love him so much. And and my wife, who is not a horror person at all, she loves Ian McGregor too, though. She enjoys. <laughs> to be Doctor fair, Sleep. yeah. <laughs> she liked it. It was it was good. Um, so Flanagan, I think, is very he, he's he is another you know sort of top tier horror director right now, especially the more atmospheric style. But uh, Stephen Johnson just seems kind of out of his depth, and it's not the focus. I mean, like B Bentley is meant to be a frightening character, uh, which again, sorry, <laughs> yeah, you just lost that one. It, it no worky. Um, but, uh, you know, he does his, you know, fill people with brimstone thing. And uh, then, for reasons that are very unclear, the murdering of these bikers allows for the appearance of three elemental demons. And for the remainder of this, I'm just going to refer to them as the Black Eyed Peas. Because yeah. they're, Who are just, they? Who they're just the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> like, one of them looks a lot like Apple. Uh, whatever that guy's name is, uh, for the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, the costume design in this film is not good. Well, you can tell uh, they put all of the budget into Ghost Rider's costume, mm -hmm. and yeah. then none of the budget into any of the other things. <laughs> no, uh, the the Ghost Rider looks good, but Ghost Rider is a very is a very straightforward 
costume. You can't really uh, mess it up. It would be very difficult to mess it up. But I mean, they 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 grab the look of it, the the overall feel of it. The the stunt actor who is is playing most of the Ghost Rider parts is the right proportions, really broad shoulders, very narrow hips. Um, you know, like it, as he was being drawn in the the late '90s and early 2000s, it, it's pretty much dead on. But everybody else is either in a long black coat that really doesn't. Read. <laughs> Um, like you can't, like there's a ton of, of, and, and it could have just been the version that I was watching. Um, but I, even some of the ones that I've streamed, you know, online through services and stuff, everything is, is crushed. All of the blacks in this are crushed. There's very little clarity in the and blacks. And you would have thought um, that they would have had a little bit more foresight putting the film together, knowing that it is so dark that it would have a lot of black and you might not want to do that. <laughs> Again, just like something that you would think would occur to a director, and it didn't. Right. Yeah. The the it's it's pretty natural when you have a dark scene at night that you're filming in a studio or some other environment that you use a lot of blue light. Right. You want to use a lot of blue light to get your to to get that. Oh, it's you know we're under the moon or, or whatever. Yeah. But you lose all of your black detail when you do that and in this case it was just it, it just doesn't look very good this is not a, a great looking movie some pieces of it do there are shots and setups and sequences in this movie that are great um many of them are not and and this is one of them this bar scene it's difficult it's to read you can't see anything it, you know there's dead bodies laying everywhere but you, you kind of forget about it. It, it there's just a lot of stuff that feels sort of half-baked maybe this was a reshoot too i i don't know it seems like it would have been fairly important to the story so i, I would hope that it wasn't like reshoot material but it's really hard to say it has that same feel right like we we had you know two and a half weeks in a studio we needed to shoot this so this is what we did but so uh the black eyed peas show up without fergie and thank god uh, and uh, wes bentley offers well he doesn't really offer them anything. he commands them to help him find the contract of san venganza and again sort of briefly re-explains the opening of the story and that they're looking for the graveyard of san venganza and and I guess basically the, the Black Eyed Peas are supposed to be some kind of demons that I think later Carter Slade explains that they were, um, they hide in the elements. They're like his the homies. They're Blackheart's homies. <laughs> right. Uh, very, mm, okay. Um, again, we, we don't really know who they are. They are named. He does kind of call them out. He... You know, Gressel and Wallow. Yeah, we. Yeah, and we. we I just, don't remember the other ones. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't make a difference. And and then uh, Mephistopheles shows up and challenges Blackheart, uh, which really the only thing uh, most of that dialogue is is completely worthless and and could be left out of the film. All we're really supposed to take away from the scene between them is that it's Blackheart is his his son. And um, that he, I guess we do find out that Blackheart is, is different from Mephistopheles, right? His powers are different and his limitations are different. 
again, it would be helpful if we had someone here at this phase of the film to start explaining that Mephistopheles is, is not Satan in the traditional sense. And that he has, and they introduce this idea and do very little with it, that he, that Blackheart, since he was born later, never fell. Right? Which, yeah. which they let it read in the movie like, oh, you're the devil, you fell from heaven. But that's not the fall they're no. talking about. Uh, the, that is a, it is a different set of events leading to the splintering and, uh, and factioning of the Hell Lords. And all this stuff, right? Like, it's it's not... But since culturally we kind of know that basic... Yeah, story, it fills Lucifer, in that blank. Right. They just let that read that way, even though that's that's not what the characters are talking about. Um, and that's that's okay. Uh, but again, this sequence is, is so dark. And basically all you can see is the ha- is, is halves of these guys' faces... And I'm sure it was meant to be very moody and and supposed to look really cool, but it, it just it does it's just work. hard. It's just hard to see. And the cinematographer on this movie is not bad. It's the dude who did Master and Commander, right? Which is a gorgeous movie, uh, but it takes place in the daytime, which helps. <laughs> you know, he shot Gallipoli, like, but he was he was an Australian cinematographer that was hired, you know, because they were in Australia. And, and, you know, very good, but I, this movie just doesn't look great. Like, some of the choices being made are, are not good. But in essence, Blackheart defies his dad. I'm going to go after the, the, the MacGuffin Venganza that will somehow give me all of the power that you don't have. And, and neener, neener, neener. And that's the end of that scene. <laughs> you know, and, and again, it's, it's fine. Peter Fonda is great in it. Um but it doesn't even feel like Peter Fonda and Wes Bentley are in the same location. Um, they just feel sort of like, you know, just kind of two people staring at each other between cameras. It was the first time either of them had seen that script. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. So, uh, we get our, <laughs> we immediately jump to the next day to Johnny's big event, right? At the, Oh God, what was it called? The, uh, do you remember uh, Sobe, right? Wasn't that? Oh, the, yeah. It's like the Sobe Dome or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Sobe Dome, which it may have been a real thing. I don't know. Maybe it's it's a real place. It feels just more like brazen product placement here. Uh, that somebody was like, hey, man, did you have that Sobe to tea? That's pretty good stuff, man. Um, So we get a lot more shots of people that are supposed to be American rednecks uh, that immediately transition into Johnny Blaze staring in the mirror with his awesome sunglasses on, listening, listening to Karen to Carpenters. Carpenters. I love it. It is. I mean, it is a really great line. Mac is like, hey, man, we got to do the thing. And he's like, hey, you're stepping on Karen. You're stepping on Karen. Stepping on Karen. Um, which, you know, I, again... It feels like it feels like characterization by Quirk. Like they're trying to characterize Johnny through these like strange quirks and it's not and it's just not landing, right? Like I get what they're trying to do. Oh, he loves the Carpenters, which is generally a band that you would not associate with a badass stunt biker, right? That's like 
you know, pop music, soft music, and he's a hard guy. You know, so I get it, and it's it's really cool. And I think if we had a larger sort of image of of Johnny's world, but really we've only seen him at this it's, point in the movie in the context of his father dying and then him doing like crazy stunt stuff. If we hadn't spent so much time with the background on San Venganza and Blackheart and I just the more I think about those parts of the film, the more I'm like, I could have just done with more ghostwriter. Yes, this movie and and this was a common complaint that I had. And it was really Batman Begins was the first one that broke it. Even all the way back to Batman 89, which was my first like major superhero event. And that is that none of these superhero movies had enough of their named superhero in them. And it was a constant frustration. I remember leaving Batman Returns, and I would have been maybe 12, or almost 12. And... You know, I get in the car and I'm I'm talking to our dad and, and I'm just like, What do you think, Dad? And and he was nonplussed. Like he did not enjoy that movie at all. And there I was wasn't pre- I mean, a lot to enjoy. And I was still pretty hyped on it because it was still Batman. And but then as I as we were driving home, we had a fairly long drive because we came down and we went to a nearby town to see it because I got it before uh the the closer one. And and I remember being like, Man, there were only like four Batman scenes in that movie. You know, I mean, there was like Batman in costume, but like Batman doing Batman stuff. There's only the like stuff four you or want five to moments, see you know? when you're a kid. I mean, that's why that's you I'm, go to those comic books. That's movies. why I'm there for. And, and this one definitely has a lack of that. But I, I really think the first, I think the first full act of this movie, I don't even think you need Blackheart. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, you just don't, we don't need to see what he's doing. We don't need to see what he's up to. You've already, we I mean, don't you, care. Yeah, it doesn't matter. If you if you keep the prologue with the 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 San Venganza backstory and the the you know contract, just let that lie there. Let's ride with Johnny. Let's see what he's up to, and then maybe have him. You know, he's got all of this these books on the occult. If this was such a massive event, a town of a thousand people getting wiped off the face of the planet, maybe he stumbles across a story about that. Maybe he reads something about that. Right, I mean, there's lots of ways to keep that in the audience's mind without, without cold stopping the movie dead, yeah, and pulling your major character out of the limelight. You could get that job done in other ways, and and frankly, still not harm Blackheart because at this point, moving forward now, Blackheart just sort of dalliances his way into scenes, sort of apropos of nothing, and. It, it, again, it, it feels like we needed more time with Johnny as a character, especially now yeah. because now we get the additional complication of Roxanne being brought back in. So, so his former girlfriend, uh, now played by Eva Mendez, sort of appears in a what feels like a really bad reshoot shot. I don't know about you, but when she's in that long hallway, sort of staring at him, yeah, that just feels like such a reshoot to me, like. It just is. It doesn't hang with the rest of it. It's lit differently. Everything about it's bad. But Johnny sees her reemergence in his life as a sign that things are about to turn around. That things are going to change for him. Uh, which you know, from a screenwriting standpoint, I think you want. Right. This is a character that you've basically established has very little hope. 
right? Like there's no, he doesn't see a future for himself, which is why he's completely willing to die on a regular basis because he just doesn't care. And then this character comes back into his life and now that changes. Oh, now I do have something to live for. There are are stakes now. And so he makes his next big jump and, and he's successful because instead of remembering all of the pain of his life, he remembers all the happiness with Roxanne. And man, this movie loves its, its little flashback montages. Holy shnikes. They are yeah. everywhere. Uh, it's even how he chooses to show the penance stare, which I think is kind of an interesting choice. I mean, it makes sense, but um, they're just everywhere. And that was, I mean, that's really like a 2000s editing thing. It was done all the time. Um, and it's, it's everywhere here. Uh, but so Johnny's jump this time is, is kind of fun. You know, Max spends two scenes trying to convince him not to put cars underneath it as he jumps over a football field, which I'm not even sure is physically possible. Um, <laughs> Fucking awesome, in a motorcycle. <laughs> um, and, and instead we get, you know, another little flashback to his dad saying that he wanted to jump a helicopter with his son, that that'd be so cool. And, and this is Johnny's, you know, rotted out version of that where he's i mean and again he can't just the at this point in the movie that's literally like 15 minutes ago that his dad said that like it's not been a long time at all but we still get the the little insert flashback of his dad be like jump a motor jump a motorcycle over helicopter i kind of got the feeling that with those flashback things that maybe there was supposed to be more that there was there could have been more exposition and more relationship building with his father and we just didn't see it because yeah, the movie had already a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot to accomplish. Uh, but so Johnny makes this amazing jump. He clears all these helicopters. He lands successfully, and then he just beats feet straight out of the straight out of the stadium and uh, goes after Roxy, which does lead to a very cute. A very cute scene. Uh, you know, the jump itself is executed well. You know, he closes his eyes again as he, you know, tells himself that you can't be ruled by fear. But he sees Roxy this time, as I said. And, and you know, now he has drive, purpose, hope, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so then he chases Roxy down. Uh, what do you think of this scene? I think it's kind of cute. Um, um, as he's, like, doing all the bike tricks to get her attention and stuff. I thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was charming, but again, I i really like Nicolas Cage in this role. I Maybe it was because I followed it for so long, because I do like Ghost Rider so much, but I was happy that he had fun, and I liked scenes like this, because they're fun. It was a cute, kind of <clears throat> dangerously romantic scene. Yeah, I, I think, you know, again... If we go back to the Daredevil model, this is kind of this movie's version of the teeter-totter fight, um, but better, right? I'm not, that's not an insult, but it, it, as far as its occupying position in the story, this is where our, our two leads need to sort of hook up and, and make each other aware of, of their feelings and, and move forward. But this gets to be done, uh, you know, Cage is... is <laughs> He's not doing a bunch of tricks. It's, there's actually a very early like uh, face replacement uh, shot here, but he's like riding on his handlebars and, and doing all these crazy things, trying to get her attention, which you know it feels like something a crazy stunt driver would do, right? Like this, this feels very like okay. I believe that this guy would do that based on what I've seen, 
And, and that's good. We needed more of that. I mean, he's like shaking the driver's hand. He's like, Hey, what's up, man? You know, like he's you know driving on this motorcycle at a hundred miles an hour. And he's just like, cool. You know, like, let me shake your hand. What's going on? Uh, and you know, there's a little action, you know, he dodges a semi truck or whatever. It's silly, but, um, you know, I like this. I think that the movie needed more of this kind of stuff. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that there was more of this kind of thing. And it just didn't make it in. Or if it did, it wasn't used in the same way. So he gets him to finally stop and he asks Roxy out on a date, which she agrees to, while traffic is piling up on the highway behind them. And he's just like, ah, don't worry about that. It's fine. Uh, which again feels... I believe that Johnny Blaze would be like, don't, yeah, just, you know, don't, don't worry about that. It's okay. Even though it's this huge inconvenience and, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. So I guess we could, let's talk a bit about Nick Cage's take on Johnny Blaze. So what do you like about his performance? What stands out most to you? I liked that, um, <clears throat> like I said before, I kind of get tired of the big, beefy, angry superhero trope. Um, I like that he didn't immediately go to that. He tried to bring something unique, something mm-hmm. different, something very Nicolas Cagey. I mean, he is very true to his performance identity. I mean, all of his performances are unequivocally Nicolas Cage. And while I think he did do that, he stayed true to himself as an actor and, and true to, to what he does. I do think that this was a, for Nicolas Cage, this was a bit subdued. I'm be, I like, I've, I'm just saying, like, I'm putting this up against things like the Wicker Man, mm, where he true. punched a woman in the face. <laughs> I mean, and even, you know, his Michael Bay output with, uh, you know, Con Air and stuff. Yeah. Like, this is, this is fairly. You know, people talk about this being over the top, but I mean, like... I think it could have been way crazier. (laughs) For sure. And maybe, and honestly, maybe it was. Maybe one of the things that Steven Johnson was asked to tone down or felt that he needed to tone down was the the level of Cage's performance. It's entirely possible. But he is trying to, to paint Johnny as this more unique figure, right? He's not just your standard, you know, take your lumps, beefcake, punchy, punchy man that we see in a lot of ways. Uh, in in comic book movies of this era, for sure. And and you know you don't hire Nicolas Cage unless you want that kind of energy. Like let's be honest, right? You yeah. don't you don't put him in that unless you want. You a can't bit tell of me that. in two thousand seven they didn't know what they were getting into. No, no, I mean, <laughs> Nicolas Cage was well established at that point, and you know I think his his passion and his drive to to be in a comic book film. You know, had been around for a long time. People knew about it. And he had a certain, you know, star power cachet at this point. Um, you know, this is not, you know, 2010 to 2014 where he was just basically taking work to pay off his taxes. Um, which, you know, supposedly was a little bit of this too. But, uh, you know, I, I don't hate him in this. I think he's really working pretty hard to try and sell us on a, a conflicted, sort of haunted, sort of dark character with <clears throat> really bad impulse control and and a, a bit of violence, you know, in him. And and I think that that can be hard to do. Uh, Ghost Rider's not an easy character. The only other person that's really tackled him in recent memory is the guy that plays him on Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
uh, agents of Shield, uh, and that's a, a different one. That's not Johnny Blaze. No, it's it's one of the later renditions of the character. So, you know, it's it's a hard character to wrap your head around, and and you know, being this sort of reckless stunt performer, you have to be a certain kind of person to for that to work. But that person isn't necessarily going to segue immediately into a ghostwriter figure. So you have to do more to make them complicated. And I think Cage, in as much as his range and, and the specifics of what he does as an actor can allow, I think he's doing that. I mean, I've heard people say, like, this is his best performance of this type since Bad Lieutenant 2, um, which, that's debatable. Bad Lieutenant 2 is a very different movie and and quite frankly, just an absolutely insane film um, by design. And this doesn't feel like it's getting close to that at all for me, but um, he definitely is trying to play him a bit wild-eyed, but I kind of like that. So he sets up a date with Eva Mendes, and of course the night of the date is is the day that Mephistopheles comes calling to change him over into his Ghost Rider persona. So as he's getting ready for the date, he's in his, you know, black jacket, black leathers. And oh, no, that's what he leave. was going to wear. <laughs> yeah, like that was like his, Dress up nice his, for this date. He puts on his biker gear. Exactly. He just puts on his standard black biker gear, but that's like dressing up nice for the date. And then, of course, that becomes the costume of, <laughs> of Ghost Rider. Um, and so he's in the mirror. He's giving himself his pep talk. And that's when he begins the, the conversion process. His hands turn super red which i thought was an interesting you know not his eyes uh not you know flames don't start shooting out of his ears it's just his hands start getting real red and then they he washes them and they start to steam and um, he's allowed to nicholas cage out in this scene mm-hmm. and yeah it's really we're satisfying. coming up on the real the real freak out scenes um so he's had his his dad's old bike the one that he grace. he was riding as he loved uh grace exactly um it uh, disappears because he's had it stacked up on all of his exorcism books, uh, but it disappears. And, uh, you know, we, we really get the first, you know, signs that he's about to change. And these are all, these scenes are all intercut with uh, Eva Mendes on their date. She's arrived. She's waiting for a message from him. He hasn't shown up. And, and here's where we get another character by quirk moment. And I really wanted to get your read on this. So Eva Mendes is sitting there. She's waiting for Johnny Blaze to show up. And what does she pull out of her purse? But a magic eight ball. I know. That was, that, that did not sit well with me. It makes no sense. (laughs) I mean, if we had seen that in like the teenager flashbacks, that like that was her thing. And, Mm -hmm. And I feel like there was maybe supposed to be something like that. I think that's exactly what it was. I think that she, because... Because it's so specific. (laughs) It's too specific. It's way too specific that she would be carrying around. And it's not like a little one. It's not like a pocket magic cape ball, right? It is one of the the, big honking magic cape ball. The full-on, like, eight-inch in diameter magic cape ball. Magic cape ball. And, And she pulls it out, and she shakes it, and then we don't even see what she gets. Nope. Like and then we, we never see even, it again. And then it's never referenced again. So I really think that because there is, you know, one of the reviewers mentioned like spirituality and, and you know, sort of religious stuff in this movie. 
I really think that there was a larger subplot where Nicolas Cage either, you know, she comes over to his apartment, finds his books because she does look through them later where they have a large discussion about fate basically. Right. Cause that's really what Johnny is, is trying to evade. He is running away from fate. He made this deal. He knows it's looming over his head. I, I don't want to be beholden, you know, this idea of second chances, getting another shot, you know, he's trying to avoid his fate. And I think at some point they were going to have a conversation and he was going to say, but I believe that you can change your fate. And she pulls out that magic eight ball and she says, maybe I do too, or something like that. Or she says the opposite where she says, no, we're bound by this. And then he's like, but that thing's all chance, you know, and, and it probably would have referenced an earlier conversation sitting underneath that tree. She's shaking her magic, magic eight ball. You know, should I go with him? Should I not? And, and maybe she's getting information that conflicts with what she wants. Who knows? But it is such a strange moment. I don't know why they left it in the movie. The scene doesn't do anything else that necessitates it being there, which tells me it was left in with intent. I mean, in terms of the structural editing of this movie, somebody made the decision to have the scene with Eva Mendes and the Magic 8-Ball at the dinner table. And it's, it's just baffling. so <laughs> baffling. But again, it fits with the model that we've seen established with, with Johnny that you establish the uniqueness of your character with a quirk. Yeah. Something about them that's weird. So her quirk is the Magic 8-Ball quirk. And then somewhere along the line in the, end edit, in the end edit, that got dropped completely. But this little piece remains and just feels so out of place as a result. You know, so I, again, I, I wonder how much of this just did not make it into the movie. And so, um, but really the, the star of this, this section, what we're really getting to, uh, what we're, we're really interested in is our first transition to Ghost Rider because yeah. we are 45 minutes into our two hour film. And, and I'm so ready to see Ghost Rider. We I have was seen waiting for it. No Ghost Rider. Uh, we well, we get a, a glimpse of the Carter Slade Ghost Rider at the very beginning, but we have seen zero Ghost Rider up until this point. We've seen some cool CG motorcycle stunts, but we have not seen any Ghost Rider. No Hell Cycles. No no chains. That's <laughs> right. None of the hallmarks. Um. So we get a. A confrontation between Johnny and uh, Mephisto, or Mephistopheles, excuse me, um, that is eerily reminiscent of their conversation at the crossroads. I think it's shot to be, you know, sort of similar to that sequence. But now uh, the devil has come to collect his due, right? This is, this is the moment that Johnny's been waiting for. And uh, the devil arrives to, to you know, initiate their bargain. And in this case, that means Johnny turning into Ghost Rider for the very first time. Um, the movie becomes overly obsessed with the uh, CG face overlays from this point on um, to its detriment, right? Like, you know, CG face replacement is always a bit of a pain in the ass and it doesn't always look very good. This one, it tries to show the, the demonic components of these people with these these facial overlays, which I appreciate what they're 
their intent. I, I know what they're trying to do, but they just don't look very good. Yeah. And I don't think they're really necessary. Like, Peter Fonda's really doing a good job with this performance. You don't have to layer some weird toothed monster over his face for that to work. He's we already creepy. He's evil. Yeah, he's evil and creepy as is. Um, and then it, it just becomes kind of common for them to cut to that or to, to lay that over. And I, I just, I don't necessarily like that choice. I, I understand why, but I, I just don't think it's necessary. Um, but so Johnny, it's the cool thing about this scene. I mean, in some ways you could call it your standard, um, you know, resistance of the call on the part of the hero, but Johnny, even though he's made this deal, attempts to, to get out of it. He says, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. And then he quickly finds out that he doesn't have a choice, which is another aspect of Ghost Rider that I, I really have always liked, is that the Ghost Rider is not Johnny. Right. Right. The Ghost Rider is a thing. It is a demon, a separate entity inhabits that inhabits him. Johnny. It takes his body over, and they don't have a direct connection to each other. They don't have a direct connection. Uh, he cannot always access the Ghost Rider's memories to remember what has happened. Like, it's, it's a really interesting relationship um, between the two versions of the character. And... If anything, it's a bit underutilized in this film because they could be two very, very different people, and they really kind of aren't um, a little bit. I mean, the Ghost Rider is obviously much more violent uh, than Johnny is, but uh, but you can still tell that Cage you know, is, is bringing something to the performance. So he turns into the Ghost Rider. We still don't really see the flaming bike yet. That's not been done, but he blazes his way. Wah, wah, wah out of the city, you know, at the top speed, leaving a trail behind. Um, we see that damn sign again, <laughs> right? Like the, Texas. Uh, welcome to Texas. So he, he apparently left Texas in that time frame. Uh, and then we cut back to Wes Bentley and the boys, um, uh, you know, black eyed peas plus Wes Bentley. <laughs> Wes Bentley's Fergie. Yeah. Featuring, featuring Wes Bentley. It's lovely lady lumps. And they're in a train yard. And why they're in the train yard is loosely explained as being at one time there was a graveyard there that got moved. The thing is, and, we need a place to have this action scene. <laughs> that's right. We need the Ghost Rider to face down these guys. And uh, we need a place to do that that is, is feasible for us to find. And, and we need to do that. We also need to make it seem like finding this contract is really hard. And that no one has ever thought to look for it before or try anything before. But Wes Bentley, by God, he's going to. So they arrive at this train yard and there's a <laughs> hapless train yard guy. I mean, I don't even know what we want to call him. Uh, overweight overalls man who says, who legitimately seems concerned for Wes Bentley and the boys. He's like... You guys really shouldn't be here. This is super dangerous. You guys need to get out of here. And they're like, where's the graveyard? And he's like, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know. They moved a long time ago. Maybe talk to him at the church. And uh, and then they just kill him for no real reason. Why not? They're bad. Uh, it's shown later in, in West Bentley's soul-searching scene that he killed this guy. So obviously we're supposed to really sort of feel for him. Uh, but they kill him. 
Uh, and uh, then Nicolas Cage arrives and gets thrown off of his motorcycle in the exact same fashion that he was thrown off of his motorcycle when he was at the crossroads with the devil at the beginning, which again, I believe is intentional and is probably meant to echo something else that has been cut from this film because it is the exact same stunt move. Like you might as well have set up the same rig inside that building as you did out on that gravel road because it's exactly the same. Uh, but he, so in any case, he transitions into Ghost Rider for the first time and we do get our, our first real like Nick Cage freak out as he, uh, as he it's converts quite over. It's good. It's a good, it's a good one. Right. He's like, he's, he's laughing, he's screaming, he's, you know, he's wild eyed, he's staring at his hands. Um, I mean, it, it's a level of commitment that you really just don't see out of a lot of actors, if we're being honest. Right? Like, That's what I love about Nick Cage. Nobody generally is willing to go here, because once you go here, there ain't no coming back. And uh, and it works. And then he transitions into, uh, you know, the ghost writer. And, then and it's Billy, great. And it is good. Uh, again, like, I cannot say highly enough that the way Ghost Rider looks in this is, is pretty much perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. Like yeah. it, and it makes you wait a long time, but the payoff is pretty rich. That's true because it's a he long is, scene. <laughs> he is in the movie a lot from this point on. Uh, we get a decent amount of Ghost Rider stuff. It's still not enough, in my opinion, yeah. but it, it is more than we might have expected, given what I am sure was a massive expense to animate and create the character in this way. I'm super shocked that they didn't try to have some kind of some kind of practical analog that they could do, you know, whether like the flames would just get toned down really low and you just kind of see the skull part for a little bit. I'm I'm really shocked that they didn't try to have some kind of practical effect that they could employ because they did the pretty blue much flame thing once and I kind of would have yeah. liked to have seen that again. Yeah, that was neat that he could sort of control the the power of the flame. Uh, that was definitely cool. But so after he changes, Wes Bentley's just there uh, clapping. It's like, yay, good for you. <laughs> Which again, it feels like there's some, you know, there's a segment that's like a scene missing, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then we get uh, the first like Ghost Rider fight, which they hit him with a semi truck, which that's a really nicely executed yeah. uh, stunt, right? Because it, it looks pretty solid. There's a nice, there's a little cut at the end where you can tell they just slammed a, a truck into a, into a wall and kind of replaced him out. But it, it still looks cool. Uh, but he comes out of that with his chain, right? He's actually got the, the chain for the first time and he begins using that. And uh, he. Uh, he kills the dirt guy from Black Eyed Peas, the one that represented the dirt element, <laughs> by uh, he turn him into like stone or something, and then just like breaks him, I guess, something like that. But like he fires up the chain, and the chain like melts the dirt, <laughs> which I'm not sure is exactly how that works. It uh, burns the dirt. It's and then dirt. Yeah. It's ash. Yeah, you, you burn. You burn the dirt, and that's how you kill it. Uh, it's a very T2, you know, moment. He just kind of collapses. But then we get the conversion of his uh, motorcycle of grace into the, what's it called? Is it called the bone cycle? I don't even remember. I think it's the hell cycle. Hell cycle, yeah. So we get the conversion into that, um, which, 
you know, they, they do a lot of CG of that cycle, but they actually did have a, a couple of physical ones, and they look really good. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a very impressive uh, effect as it converts over. Um, I will say I kind of like the motorcycle. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I kind of like the motorcycle in Spirit of Vengeance a little better. Uh, than this one. This one is very much the you know ornate skull on the front. You know the the, the whole nine yards. I kind of like the the slightly more understated one from Spirit of Vengeance myself, yeah. but um, but it's still still very cool. Uh, but <laughs> and then he, and then he stops a mugging because yeah, you know, Rebel Wilson is being mugged. Have a fight with Wes Bentley. Save Rebel Wilson from being mugged. Those, those two things go right together. Again, this feels like a piece of a movie that we didn't get to see. Right? Because, you know, if we look at Mark Stephen Johnson's Daredevil as a model, we should have a couple of sequences of Daredevil just going around the city, kicking butt, establishing himself, figuring out how to use his powers. And and this feels like a, a longer sequence of him doing that kind of thing that just didn't get in the movie. Yeah. Um, but so he's he's going to break up this mugging, and really a couple of things get established. He <laughs> saves Rebel Wilson, uh, and then points you know to Judge right because that's that's what he does. And then we really get the first time the uh, the effects of the penance stare. Yeah. Uh, which we've been, have we been told about it at this point? No, no, not no. yet. So we really see him just kind of do it for the first time. Because uh, we need our we need our um, exposition chief in, in uh, Sam Elliott to show up before we can start learning more. <laughs> so we can know what anything is. <laughs> He's the guy who knows things. And so we really get the first like penance judgment scene, which is really just fire and flames layered over what we're I, I guess we're supposed to presume are all the bad things that this guy's done adobe premiere layers of shame it is it is a lot of adobe premiere layers being deployed here and uh man it's i mean i understand why you would do it you want this very visual representation of this person being you know sort of crushed by their past and then it does kind of pull out from their eye and, and show that, you know, this is what's inside of them kind of thing. You know, whatever. But it, it's a pretty cheesy effect watching those at this point. Uh, it, it certainly could have, I think you could have done it in some other interesting ways, but. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but, so Ghost Rider goes to this uh, cemetery. We don't, we don't know why. Um, but he drives to a cemetery. I guess there is this major concept in the film of hallowed ground and that hallowed ground is kind of a safe place to recover from these forces because they can't, they can't go there. So maybe, you know, Ghost Rider had a, a maybe the idea was that Ghost Rider was trying to get him to a safe place where he could recover. We We don't really know. And you know, the comics have really started to explore the relationship between Johnny and, and the demon. Like, you know, they have conversations and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we're eventually we see that, you know, he was going to his father's grave, which is in this graveyard. 
Uh, so again, where does Johnny live? Um, Who knows? His, his dad died in a circus tent in the middle of nowhere, but apparently he was buried in the city, which seems unrealistic. Given the city of Texas? Yeah, in the city of Texas. The great <laughs> grand city of Texas is where Barton Barton uh, Blaze was, was buried. So he visits his dad's grave, and here is is where we're introduced to... Well, we eventually find out it's Carter Slade. It's it's just Sam Elliott. Uh, he's referred to as the caretaker in the film because he's the guy who tends the graves. Uh, you know, spoiler alert: he's the the old west ghost writer who has has lived a very long life waiting for someone to pass the torch to. I guess. And Johnny wakes up and there's just cups of water everywhere because he knows he'll both be thirsty, which I think is is hilarious. Um, what I, uh, one of my kids said something. They were like, I think it was like they were offended. Like, do you think it's okay to just drink that guy's water? Like, <laughs> I was like, no, honey. They, he put it there for him. He knew he would need water. That you know, he had a he had a warm night, so to speak. Um. <laughs> And uh, and so then it's it's really just an exposition dump, a big one, right? Uh, at least we get the exposition dump in Sam Elliott's gorgeous gravelly baritone. It, it very much feels like a, you know it's a little a little Lebowski. You know he's he's the the narrator. Uh, he's so of the magical. He's such a magical person. I love he looks Sam good, Elliott man. so much. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we've talked about the the weak costuming here, but it, it doesn't apply to Ghost Rider and and Sam Elliott. They're they're they look really good, uh, and their costuming is is pretty much spot on. You know, the fact that nobody has realized that this dude is wearing pants from the eighteen eighties is a little bit shocking. Well, you know, you live in a graveyard; you can wear old cowboy pants. Nobody knows. Nobody's gonna care. Yeah. Um, so basically the, the rule of this scene, he's, we, basically he establishes and tries to explain to Johnny what Ghost Rider is, who Blackheart is, you know, everything that's going on. So it, it's an unfortunate scene that we need it at this point to explain all these things because we, we don't have a frame of reference for this stuff, but it does make sense that Johnny would need a, a guide because how would he know? How could he discover this? Unless they'd established that in his books he had run across this demonic spirit before, which would be another way to do it, but again, a, a probably far less believable way to do it. Um, but it's a cool scene. Again, Sam Elliott can, I mean, he can just stand on screen and kick dirt, and I'd still watch it. It'd be fine. Um, but then in our... our unfortunate secondary story of hi i'm eva mendes and i need things to do uh we see her reporting because in addition to being an entertainment reporter who would cover johnny blaze doing a stupid jump at the sobe dome uh apparently she's also a hardened crime reporter who's going to go she's the only and, reporter they have <laughs> she's the only one and uh, she's a hardened crime reporter that's uh, on the streets, putting down the tracks, trying to find the real answers. Uh, and so we find out that people have discovered all the bodies at the saloon that was out in the desert, and they, they see it as some kind of serial killing. And that the kills, uh, the train yard guy died in the same way, so they think they're connected. 
So this sets up probably the most useless subplot of the film, which is that the cops are on Johnny's trail because they think that he's a serial killer. That um, is a Batman constraint if I have ever heard one. Yeah, that, that feels like somebody saw Batman Begins and said, we need that in our movie, even though it, it doesn't. it goes literally nowhere. Like, no one's upset by the reports of a flaming skull riding a motorcycle, no. but everyone is very upset about this potential murderous motorcycle stunt driver. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Just the guy that, you know, local boy. I mean, his dad's buried in the graveyard, so it's not like they don't know who he is. Uh, you know, obviously he's he's out to, to murder a bunch of bikers in a bar in the middle of nowhere oh, yeah. and then come back to town and start doing the same thing. Uh, but again, the, you know, so she's trying to talk to Captain Dolan about the, the crime and he just doesn't want anything to do with it. He tells her to piss off. What a jerk. And it, it, it again, it just, it goes nowhere. It's pointless. It's, it's, there's no exposition. It doesn't do anything to let, to, to take us anywhere in the story. It's just a, uh, we have a character in this movie that needs things to do. So here we go. But really, we we almost immediately cut back to uh, Johnny and the caretaker, and the caretaker is continuing to explain things that if you're really paying attention to your audience, you're going to go like, how does this guy know any of this stuff? <laughs> if he's just the humble caretaker of the local graveyard, how does he have any of this information? I know I think there's this part where he says, like, legend says, you know, but again... The fact well, that you Johnny look old-timey. I'll trust everything that you say. Right. The fact that Johnny doesn't look at him and go like, how do you know any of this shit, man? Like, who told you this stuff? Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. Of course, again, you know, I, I don't think it's really meant to be a mystery. I think it's more just a, you know, we're not going to tell you this until the right moment in the film. Then we get the great scene where they're talking about the toxins and uh, and how brimstone is uh, is killing them, or sulfur. I'm sorry, sulfur is killing them. Their oh, bodies are filled with sulfur. And then it's Eva Mendes who looks at them and says, "Hey, that sounds biblical." And they're like, "What are you talking about?" Like almost literally, like, "What are you talking about?" And she's like, "Yo, brimstone." And they're like. <gasps> Whoa. And, and again, it's just pointless. It's just it's just a ridiculous scene. Uh, Johnny shows up because why not, right? Uh, you know, you would go back to the scene of the crime and just sort of walk and me. <laughs> I just want to understand things. <laughs> you know, I just I need to be present. Uh, and then we get a scene that I actually remembered very well, but had never made the connection that it was was Rebel Wilson, where she's describing the guy with the flaming skull <laughs> who rescued her. And, you know, she's wearing the, what does it say? I leave bite marks. I leave marks bite marks. <laughs> that girl is so me in 2007. Man. Oh, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was great. And you can see the little, I mean, like some of her like classic, like Rebel Wilson moves are already on display. It's, it's, uh, it was, you know, it was really surprising. Like I was just like, holy crap. I didn't, I had no idea. I completely forgotten that it was her. Although I definitely remembered the scene in the character, and I was like, "Oh, that was really funny." Like she was, she got a, a decent joke and laugh. Um, and then here is the we start a period in this film that I'm just going to refer to as relationship whiplash between Eva Mendes and Johnny Blaze because uh, they're on the outs now because he missed the date. She doesn't give him a chance to explain. 
then almost immediately, like a scene or two later, they're she's over at his place being like, but we could be together. And now he's like, cause he's ghostwriter. He's like, ah, oh, we can't be together. And even, even my eight year old, my adorable, adorable eight year old who knows nothing is like, he just turned to me and he went, that was fast. <laughs> I was like, what? and he's like, wasn't she just like really mad at him? And I was like, yeah, yeah, she was. And he's like, shouldn't she still be mad at him? It's like, yeah, yeah, probably. But the movie doesn't have time for that. We need to keep moving. We need to keep going. So they're in love again. Cause you know, that's a thing. Um, but you know, again, in, in random subplots that go nowhere, they find Johnny blazes license plate in the street that has fallen off of his evidence <laughs> that somehow is evidence that he's responsible you know, because if the, your license plate falls off your car during a violent exchange, uh, that means that you must be the then person you who done perpetrated it. it. Yeah, it was all you. And it was. I mean, it was him. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, They weren't wrong. <laughs> They're not wrong, but it's just stupid <laughs> that they would think that that's evidence to bring somebody in. Uh, and then, okay, so then we get probably one of the most infamous shots in the film. It was in the trailer. Or at least I should say an early version of it was in the trailer. The, uh, the the final version in the film they they tried to to do more with but it, it still didn't help uh, and that is the uh, Nicolas Cage shirtless in the mirror shot um, because you know they already detected the the need for beefcakery in these films right the the payoff shot for the ladies who have sat there with their uh, neckbeard boyfriends uh, forced to endure this madness little, at least they get to see a little did the creators know eye that i was there for the sexy skeleton on fire that's <laughs> i'm in the camp i'm in camp rebel wilson kind of hot yeah love hot. ghost rider it, it really worked for him um, <laughs> but basically they they cg'd abs on nick cage uh, Nick Cage, as you said, he had worked out quite a bit to get into shape for the role. Uh, he was in his mid-40s at this and point. in praise um, of how he looks, he looks really good in this movie. He does. His hair is bad. They they decided to give him more of like a almost George Clooney-style front do uh, instead of his, you know, he has a very high forehead and, and you know, sort of the, the widow's peak, deep furrows. Most of the time, which they embraced in Spirit of Vengeance. Spirit of Vengeance, they just ran with you know Nicolas Cage's Nicolas Cage hair. Uh, in this one, they tried to like pull more down, and it, it's probably a little bit of extension. I think they were trying to but... make him look younger when really that's not necessary. Right. Like, he doesn't yeah. look old as it is because he's not old. Yeah, I mean Johnny Blaze is supposed to be thirties, you know, or, or close to it, uh, and he can still pull that off. It's a bit of a stretch, but. It, it's okay, but so this this CG abs thing was a bit of a controversy, um, you know. People saying like, you know, why would you do that? You know, he's in shape enough, kind of thing. And and Cage himself, I think, even did a few interviews saying that he was disappointed because I think they had even done um, there was some CG work, but they had actually done like a, pro, a a prosthetic makeup for his his stomach as well. And then only did CG, you know, replacement because they weren't happy with the way that that prosthetic looked. But he just wasn't able to get cut for the film. Like, you just, you know, it's extremely difficult to do. It requires you know, very, very careful maintenance of your body weight 
And ghostwriter is not a role that demands beefcakery. I mean, when you're in the superhero form of ghostwriter, you are on fire and you have no skin. So it doesn't demand a lot of physical prowess. (laughs) And uh, again, it it felt like a studio demand uh, or, or a concession to a studio demand, perhaps. But it just feels out of place. Uh, the scene, it's another. He's basically just kind of like making googly eyes in the... Yeah, he's, he's trying to like learn it. to control the writer. Right. And so he's he's sort of like... I think he's also trying to get an idea of what he looks like as the ghost writer. Like what his face would look like without skin uh, is kind of the idea I had too. Is that he's, you know, sort of trying to wrap his head around what a skinless you know, bone face would look like on him, which is again, kind of a neat thing, you know, because you wouldn't really have any conceptualization of what your, because ostensibly the skull is supposed to be his skull. We saw him transition back and, and see his skin kind of reform over the top of his, his skull. So, uh, you know, he's just trying to figure out what he looks like, uh, which is again, kind of an interesting question that maybe wouldn't normally ask. Uh, so then we get a brief montage of scenes as he's doing some additional research on angels and demons and some of the other stuff that's going on. But it's mostly in the service of him believing that he can learn to control the writer inside of him. And he experiences some success. Um, again, this is a very super common scene in superhero movies of this type as you know the hero learns to master his new abilities uh, the 2008 Hulk that comes out next year has a bunch of scenes like this in it. It's, you know, he's trying to master his rage, but he's interrupted by the presence of, of Eva Mendes, who has arrived to tell him that no, she's not actually mad at him. That instead they should be together forever. And you know, we've already talked about bad costuming in this movie. Um, Eva Mendes is dressed horribly in this film. Um, it's like the person who dressed her had no idea what they were doing and had a single directive. And that directive was deliver as much cleavage as possible, Uh, which which they, cleavage they were successful. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and Eva Mendes has much marvelous cleavage, Mm -hmm. marvelous cleavage, but Um, they made her, they, she has no consistent style in the film. So she just looks bad and out of place all the time right she's got like the power suit in one scene she's got like the this this sort of she's got her like super tight dresses and then she shows up in like the the awkward jacket i don't know it's just not good costume yeah it's it just it doesn't fit it's it felt like somebody was trying to and again maybe these are scenes that were cut it almost feels like somebody was told to dress her like johnny was going to take her for a ride Right, like she needed to be ready to be on the back of a motorcycle. And honestly, this this scene where you know they're they're making up, uh, which you know even my children went like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's this? Why is this so fast?" It almost feels like rather than being interrupted here again, that you know they would have gone for a ride together, and and she would have been you know appropriately dressed. To, to sort of do that and, and shoot some scenes in that way. But this is really the outfit she wears for kind of the rest of the movie. And it, it's, it, it's just really basic and it just doesn't look good on her. So I, I don't know. It was just something that even as we were all watching, we were like, wow, she's, she's a, a very 
you know, beautiful woman and she is just not being she's not being properly cared for by the costume department in terms of making sure that she is is being represented well on screen and and you know it just seems like a missed opportunity uh, the acting in this particular scene, I think, is good. It's really one of the first times that Cage and Mendes have been able to actually do things opposite each other rather than because all of their scenes have been very directed, like, oh, you are angry at him about this or, oh, you are excited to see her because this. This is really one where they just get to, you know, exchange dialogue, ask questions of each other. And then, you know, surprisingly, he goes ahead and reveals what he is, <laughs> uh, which I, I think actually is, is one of Cage's best moments in the movie um, because he just sort of launches into it without any guile. <laughs> just, yeah, you know, a uh, flaming skull-headed rage monster. Yep, that's that's it, you know? And it's very matter-of-fact, it's very blunt, and it just feels... It feels like the way somebody like Johnny Blaze would explain his predicament. Uh, it it just it worked for me. I, I think it was very good, but but it really doesn't matter. He's basically just trying to get rid of her because you know now that he is the Ghost Rider, it's it's dangerous for her to be around him. And so again, relationship whiplash. They were apart. Now they're together. Now they're apart again. Now they're going to be together again in a little bit. And it, it just kind of keeps bouncing back and forth with very little reason behind it. And. And it just really diminishes this, you know, it, love story, I guess, if we want to call it that. <laughs> it just doesn't really get to materialize in a, in a realistic way, which is, is unfortunate because I think that a movie like Ghost Rider is going to potentially benefit from Ghost Rider or at least, you know, the Johnny Blaze part of Ghost Rider having someone to care about, right? Someone to, to legitimately want to keep safe. Uh but we we skip all that completely to come back to pointless storyline C as the cops arrive with perfect timing. I mean, absolutely impeccable timing. I mean, she just drove away down one of the alleys in which they're arriving from. And, and here they are to collect Johnny Blaze because they found his license plate in some rubble, which means that he is the violent murderer of all of these people. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Um, you know, because if you drop your pen at a bank, you must have been the guy that robbed it, you know. We found a pen with your name on it, sir. <laughs> Tell us where the money is. How dare you? Um, and again, I kind of like Cage's commitment here. I, I don't think he has... This feels like a scene that they didn't finish writing. Because all Johnny says throughout the entire thing is, I didn't kill anybody. He has no other line. They deliver all of this exposition, but what about this guy? And what about that guy? And what about these people? And he's like, yeah, but I didn't kill anybody. And and it just kind of continues on like that for quite some time. Again, in the terms of a movie with a runtime this length, I'm like, why are you spending five and a half minutes in this? It doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. it, because we know as an audience that Ghost Rider is not going to go to jail for these things. Right? We don't we have time this. for that. <laughs> Uh, the only funny scene in it is when the guy tries to light his cigarette and, and like the flame like you know gets pulled out of the lighter because it's going towards Johnny, which is kind of a nice moment. <clears throat> but so Johnny gets thrown in jail. Uh, we 
one of the few things that Carter Slade did say very specifically is that in the presence of evil, the Ghost Rider will emerge. And so get another little, you know, mini cage freak out, mini cage freak out as he's being walked into the holding cell and he sees all of these bad people around him. And, and sure enough, you know, the Ghost Rider emerges. Um, now, from what Mark Stephen Johnson said, the original script that was given to him when he took on the project, uh, David S. Goyer, you know, frequent, mm. frequent, you know, <laughs> might as well be a guest on our podcast. Frequent name and credits. <laughs> frequent name and credits uh, had done a, a, a full draft of, of Ghost Rider. And from what I understand, this is the only scene from that that uh, he kept. Um. And maybe that's why it feels like it doesn't belong in this movie. <laughs> it's a good scene, and I like it. And as a scene, I think it works very well. In Which terms is of the, not at this place in the movie. Yeah, in terms of the overall structure of this film, if we were going to do this, it should have happened a lot sooner. Yeah. This should have been like the second time that we ever saw him change about 45 minutes before this. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, really, what, what would have made the most sense to me, right, and maybe this is something that did happen in in a different version of the script, when he's out on his first, like, you know, I'm Ghost Rider set of missions, like when Rebel Wilson gets saved, because, again, that's the other question I always have, is why is Rebel Wilson at that scene, right? Nothing that happened with her was anywhere near where all that other stuff happened where he blew up the stuff as he drove by on the bike, but she's there. It feels to me like what should have happened is he goes out, he does all this crime fighting, the cops pick him up, right? And then he's thrown in the slammer and, and he gets out much earlier, right? And Probably in a modern even. Marvel movie with the, the structure that they use now, that probably would have been worked in and worked in really well into the first half of the film. But this think. one, it just it just doesn't work. Right. And really, everything that happens after it, as cool as this stuff is, and it's very cool, it's all for naught. It's completely pointless. Now, the one thing that does happen in the jail transition scene is he gets his jacket. Right. And you can tell that that's really the reason why they kept it in the movie is because he gets his upgraded you know, spike shoulder jacket with But they models. could have explained that jacket any way they wanted. <laughs> right. I mean, it, you, it's really the Terminator, you know, it's the, you know, give me your boots, your car, your motorcycle, you know, it's it's just <laughs> that. Um, and you could do that anywhere, right? You could have that guy mugging some dude on the street, you know, but I, I like that, I like the way that he exits as he just like brings down the, the bars and, and puts on the jacket and the spikes pop out. Like, that's very cool. It is. And, he, and he does, you know, he is kind to the young boy that's in the lockup and he tells him he's innocent, you know, you know, that's good. But really this entire next, the entire next sequence is, I guess, I guess he's just evading police. Like it's really all the next sequence is, is just him getting away from the cops and as much again, there's some cool shots in this. It's it's pointless, right? What are the yeah. cops going to do to him, even if they catch him? <laughs> Reports right? of a flaming skull. <laughs> yeah, it just it makes zero sense. So he gets on his motorcycle, he calls it, he whistles for it, which they establish as being his thing. 
he blows up a garage sign so it just says rage. That's exciting, right? I mean, that's that's a good time. That was cute. You know, womp womp. And, uh, and then, again, all of this stuff of him escaping the police is intercut with Wes Bentley harassing some priest about where the 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 graveyard is or where the bodies were moved. I just every time Wes Bentley is on the screen I want him to go away. <laughs> it's just again the the structural editing of this movie doesn't make a lot of sense because all he tends to do is rob any sense of forward momentum that he has with an intercut sequence to Wes Bentley's character's actions which are unimportant for the direction of the plot. Yeah. Um, Because we know we're leading to a final confrontation with them, and it's fine if we need to be generally reminded of what's going on with that. Sure. But the excitement here, the action here, is on Ghost Rider. Why would you cut away to a guy in a dark jacket harassing a priest? Yeah, that scene should have been over and done before this scene with Ghost Rider ever started. Right. I mean, and it could have been, right? You could have done that entire thing. You know, Nicolas Cage gets dragged to the lockup. He sits down on a bench and he's like, just stay away from me. Stay away from me. And then you cut to Wes Bentley, do his scene, cut back, and then it's Ghost Rider. I I kind of feel like this is Mark Steven Johnson not wanting to spend too much time on a particular set piece. Mm -hmm. Because it feels like he does this a lot. Where you know, we'll have these sort of intercut moments where we're we're jumping around in the plot, and I'm not really sure why because you don't have to do that. It's it's fun when movies do it and execute it really well when you have these sort of concurrent storylines, but I don't think it's necessary in Ghost Rider. Right. Yeah. It, it feels unnecessary, and it, it feel it, mostly it just it, it drag. I think that's what makes the film drag. Is yeah. that you really don't get any of these nice sort of flowing action sequences. Everything is, is chopped up with stuff that just sort of slows everything down. And I'm still just the spatial geography of this universe doesn't make any sense to me. Because this San Venganza place is supposed to be out in the middle of nowhere, right? So they they look for the graveyard, which is in this abandoned or not abandoned, but nearly abandoned train yard, right? They find out, oh, maybe the priest at St. Michael's Church is the one who knows where the bodies are. Okay, so they go to St. Michael's Church. You would think that the church that helped to navigate this would be close to the original location of the graveyard, but apparently not. It is also in the city where Ghost Rider is. And so him and his, his you know, the remaining black-eyed peas are, are walking down the street and they just hear the rev of a motorcycle. They just hear the rev. And one of them turns around and is like, he's coming for us. And then, <laughs> and then Wes Bentley like, looks at the, the air guy uh, and he goes, you know what to do. And then the air guy takes off and it's like, okay. And then he gets into like a fight with Ghost Rider and then just disappears. Again, this all feels like really... We have this action sequence here, but we need to combine it with this other thing here so we're going to shoot this little shot here it just it feels very very we don't know what we're doing and my my feeling is that this was a scene where ghost rider straight up i i think ghost rider fucked up some cops 
in the original version of this. I can see that. Like, real bad. Like, I think some cops got killed. Because, you know, he has that scene where he, like, swings the helicopter around, and then it mm-hmm. just kind of, like, floats away. It's like, oh, everything's fine. Is that really fine. how that was supposed to go? Is that how that was supposed to go? I'm not so sure. Because he looks at the guy, and he says, you know, you're pissing me off. And then we cut to a shot of supposedly the pilot inside responding. And the pilot's like, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm just going to go now. Helicopters aren't very loud. (laughs) No. You can have a conversation. And he certainly wasn't wearing like a full, you know, headset so that he could talk to his other people in the helicopter. I, I think he crashed that helicopter and killed that cop. And somebody at the studio said no. No. Ghost Rider doesn't do that. Ghost Rider doesn't do that. Does and Ghost Rider absolutely does. So he's on a rooftop. He was supposed to have destroyed that helicopter that was chasing him. They needed to take that out. So the helicopter floats away, and now we have wind demon, random wind demon boy who shows up, and then he creates a tornado flame with his chain. The black eyed peas wind. <laughs> That's right, and now uh, yet another member of the Black Eyed Peas is sacrificed to Ghost Rider's horrific vengeance. Um, so yeah, I feel like this scene was it, it just it feels like it was chopped up from something else. And then we, uh, I, I will say, there is the uh, what do we want to call it? The Daredevil shot because he jumps off the roof <laughs> and then it does the slow mo thing like at the end of Daredevil when. You know, Dare, they, he basically just does that Joe Quesada cover from like Daredevil 47 or whatever. Um, and, and then like Ghost Rider just lands in front of all these cops and they're getting ready to shoot him. And he just like stands there and lets them shoot him for really no reason. <laughs> and then that's it. Um, so this all ends weirdly. Uh, Roxanne is there watching. And it, you can tell, like, he wants to have an emotional moment with her, and it just kind of doesn't work. Um, again, her cleavage is very big and just just hanging out. I'm fine and, with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a movie. It's it is a comic do. book movie. I expected some cleavage. <laughs> the blue flame helmet, and he tries, and then they just all shoot him, and, and then he just leaves because, you know, that's what you do. Well, what are you going to do? He's a flaming skeleton. So we're going to jump forward just a little bit here. There's there's some more stuff with Eva Mendes and the cops. And I think after that Eva Mendes scene where they're like, you've got six hours to produce the stuff or we're going to you know, make Johnny Lavez's life we're gonna living do hell. do something. <laughs> and, and then literally nothing comes of it. We <laughs> never see them again in the film um, at all. And so, like, I, I just, I've always thought that that was hilarious, that the cops are like, you've got this amount of time, and if you can't give us what we want, that's it. It's over. And then they exit the film. <laughs> Here's this ultimatum that we're delivering, and we're very serious about, but don't worry about it. Everything's fine. And I, I there may be, there, I'm sure there, there, there may be a reference at the end, but whatever. Really, the only scene that I care about here is the scene between um, Carter Slade and, and Johnny blaze. Uh, that's, that's really what we're advancing towards. Cause we got to talk about it, but uh, we do get a, you know, Donald Logue comes back for his last scene. Again, this is so sad. 
he's at Johnny's place working on a bike or something, I guess. And uh, Eva Mendes shows up and interrupts him. And they kind of have a nice little moment together where, you know, Logue, you know, kind of tries to better understand Johnny and, and their relationship. And again, if, this feels like one of the few scenes in the movie where actors get to actually like act with each other and, yeah. and talk to each other and, and say things to each other. And it's it's refreshing because Donald Logue is great and he's underutilized in this movie. And and then it kind of doesn't matter because Wes Bentley shows up and he dies. <laughs> That's and it. and really, I <clears throat> I feel like this film was maligned for its over the top performances. When really it's just two over-the-top performances. Mm-hmm. It's Nicolas Cage and it's Wes Bentley. Right. Everybody if, else is okay. Yeah. And I think if you removed Wes Bentley from the equation, I don't know that the movie would have been as hated for its acting. Because um, Nicolas Cage is going gonna, is gonna to do his thing. And I think reviewers were well aware of that. And I, I don't even recall them being that surprised by his performance, but Wes Bentley's performance, wow. It's rough. It's, it's really one, it's just one note. Like that's the issue is he, he is playing one trick and that trick is to smirk and then, you know, sort of talk in a huspered whispered tone and, and try to be intimidating. And it just doesn't. Big evil laugh. Um, And yeah, have you ever seen? Did you see the uh, the Muppets movie that Jason Segel did? Uh, I think it was just called the Muppets. It was like a reboot that they did back in in 2012. Chris Cooper is the uh, the villain of that one. (laughs) And there are straight up scenes in the movie where he's got like his little henchmen Muppets that are with him. And he talks about some evil thing he wants to do, and he just looks at him and he goes, "Maniacal laugh." <laughs> and the other, and, the, and then the Muppets like look at each other, like, "What are we supposed to do?" And he's like, "Maniacal laugh." <laughs> and then, like, eventually, by the end of it, everybody's like, "Ha ha 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 ha!" <laughs> and, and like, that's basically Wes Bentley in this movie is maniacal laugh, and it just yeah. is—it's really unfortunate that they hinged so much when they, I mean, they had Peter Fonda. Yeah. They have Peter Fonda. They have Sam Elliott. They have, um, Oh, uh, Brett Cullen plays Bart blaze. Mm -hmm. You know, they have all of these really great character actors and kind of powerhouse actors in these very silly parts that they're bringing, you know, gravitas to these silly comic book roles. And then, Wes Bentley. Yeah. And arguably his role was one of the more important to sell to people and he just didn't sell it. Yeah. And and I think a lot of it could have been done. Part of Wes Bentley's problem and I I this is my other thought, right? So I am not sure that those elemental demon guys I'm not sure they were in this movie until the reshoots because their CG effects are terrible. Number one, I think that Wes Bentley was originally supposed to be the sole villain of this movie. It was just, that would make more sense. And 
somebody realized fairly late in the process that there's no action between Ghost Rider and any demonic forces in the movie. And I think they inserted those guys as as death fodder for one, which I'm it's perfectly fine. I'm okay with that. It's I, I believe that's a correct choice. But like the scene where Bentley is confronting Slade, you know, to say like where is the grave and, and all this stuff. Bentley's alone in that scene. Like he is fighting Carter Slade alone, and there is one insert shot. Where the, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because the, the water demon guy is, is the <laughs> Why only does one it that's cut left. To him? There is one insert shot of, and it's not even Sam Elliott from the front. It's a behind the scene, it's a behind the back shot of Sam Elliott. Like, I'm not even sure it's Sam Elliott. And then there's tell. just one shot of that guy. Everything else is all blocked and all shot as it's just between West Bentley and that. And then they just keep inserting a standalone shot of the water guy watching. Yeah. And I'm like, that dude was not there when those scenes were shot. And so I really do think that it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be all Blackheart is just the, is just the villain. And then they realized very quickly it's not enough, and West Bentley is terrible. And, and we need more villains. As as far as the timeline of comic book movies goes, the multiple villains trap was hot and heavy in two thousand seven. It makes sense that they they might have panicked a little and wanted to add more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wish that they hadn't. Yeah, it, I mean, again, it all. So many of the, so many of the roads in this movie just don't go anywhere. Yeah. They all sort of operate for naught. You know, the police stuff doesn't go anywhere. The, so at the end of the Carter Slade scene, West Bentley leans down and touches a tire tread, smells it and says, the writer, where did he go? Or where is he? And it's like, okay, so you're you're obviously trying to set up a narrative where he's like going to hunt down where Ghost Rider is. Like, but that's, why? But, but <laughs> why? Why? Why would he do that? Why does he need to do that? The Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider doesn't have anything that he needs, right? Other than to get him out of the way. But at this point, Ghost Rider has not been a threat, apart from you know killing a couple members of the black eyed peas and it's like you know it just it doesn't make sense so they've set up that you know he's going to go get the girl to to you know manipulate him i guess but it, again the the scenes just don't link together in satisfying ways most of the time which is really unfortunate um and then donald Logue dies and Ghost Rider tries to use the pen and stare on Wes Bentley, on Blackheart. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because he doesn't have a soul. He's a demon, not a human. Don't have a soul. Can't use the pen and stare. Ha ha ha. LOL. I win. Maniacal and, laugh. Maniacal laugh. And, and then he, I guess his brimstone sulfur powers can be used to extinguish Ghost Rider's flame, which. Okay. Okay. All right. Sure. 
yeah, it, it'll never happen again, and it's completely irrelevant to the final conflict of the movie. But whatever. Um, you know, but he tells Ghost Rider that you've got to go find the contract and bring it to me. I've completely failed at finding it. I have no idea what I'm doing. So you do it for me. <laughs> what a great way to establish a villain. I suck and I'm total garbage at this. So, uh, you know, go do the job uh, or I'll kill your, your girlfriend. <laughs> I, again, it just, it doesn't make sense. It almost feels like this would be, this, this would be the twist halfway through the movie. Right, where the villain gets a hold of the girl or something important, and then, you know, now Ghost Rider has to go do things that he doesn't want to do, which might put him into conflict with the cops, right? Now maybe the cops are like, hey, why is this guy hassling these people? Why is he doing these bad things? And now we have to have a confrontation with the cops, and it would be justified for him to have a confrontation with the cops. But it just comes out of nowhere that, you know, oh, okay. Ghost Rider, you need to go get this thing for me instead of me finding it myself. It, it just doesn't doesn't make sense uh, for the character to do that. But this leads to again the best the best scene in this movie. So I'm kind of okay with it. It's okay. <sighs> um, oh, oh, I guess we do find out that the contract was in the shovel the whole time. Which bum, that, bum, bum. And, and they made very special point to note that when Wes Bentley catches the shovel when he's fighting with Carter Slade, like he grabs it at that exact spot. So he had it in his hands, hmm. which I'm sure at some point was supposed to be some kind of like dramatic reveal. But here it just they run right over it. Don't even pay attention. Just whoop. Nope. Keep going. <clears throat> but I will say this as 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 a person who grew up. Uh, shoveling a lot of things. If the handle of that shovel was hollow, he wouldn't have been able to dig shit with that thing. <laughs> would that have is shattered true. immediately. But that's okay. It's a good reveal. But so we were, finally, Sam Elliott is revealed as Carter Slade. Uh, he is the it is the, so badass. The old timey Ghost Rider. He whistles for his horse, just like we've seen Ghost Rider whistle for his motorcycle. Nicholas Cage in. Probably and, you know, his best line says, let's ride. This and, is like a mm, legendary comic book character. Yeah. I mean, the the Phantom Rider, the Ghost Rider is old comic books. And I had no idea. I mean, I didn't, I tried not to prepare myself. I don't like to prepare myself before I go see movies if I can't. Um, so I didn't know that the scene was going to happen. And then when it did, it was just... It's just so good. It's so wonderful. Yeah, this is... yeah uh, The horse it's, and everything, and then Ghost Riders in the Sky starts playing. Ah! Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so the good. music is, is well chosen here. The music in this film is very hit or miss. But in, in this case, it's it's perfect. It very much is is old Western. You know, I mean, they're even riding out, again, where, where the fuck is this movie happening the city of texas now, now they're now they're in monument valley with the the giant mesas it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense but it's fine it doesn't matter because it doesn't scene matter is amazing it's it's so good it's actually shot well it looks good it's still way too freaking dark but 
the the but you can tell they're doing it for this one for the flames right because we get all of these glorious shots of the the twin ghost riders you know sort of just blowing through the desert at high speed elder scrolls online had a horse like that at one point and i missed it i wanted to get it so bad so i could be ghost rider oh yeah i think uh, world of warcraft had a flaming uh, a flaming horse like that too um, but so Slade passes his, uh, shotgun or, or I guess it's like more like a lever action rifle, I guess, but passes that to Johnny and then tells him that like that was his last ride. Basically he had enough power left for one more transition and that was the end. Um, which is, is cool, but, but he could have saved it for the battle and maybe helped out a little. Yeah, like he just he just exits right before all the stuff gets serious, and it it kind of again feels like a uh, we don't know what to do with the end of this movie, and so you being in it is going to be complicated because you're probably on another movie already, Sam Elliott, and we can't get yeah. back. <laughs> Sam Elliott's reshoots. just like that SpongeBob meme where he's like, "All right, I'm gonna head out." <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take off. All right, you guys have a great time. And and so he just kind of, you know, disappears into the wilderness, uh, you know, gone forever. But it, it really feels awkward because it's like, well, but we're going to go and, uh, and, and fight uh, the devil's son. I thought we were going to do that. But yeah, it, it's again, not really my job. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really my job anymore. I dig uh, graves now. <laughs> it's all about you, Mr. Ghost Rider Man. Uh, but it, it's still that that one sequence of them riding together through the desert is enough for me to, to go ahead and say, you should probably see this movie. It restores my heart. Because it is so (laughs) good and so awesome. Um, so again, re reconfirming that I think this entire ending is a reshoot. He rolls through the exact same it's it's the same camera setup even that we see the original phantom rider going through as he was supposedly headed to san venganza i like guess it's, it's the exact same shot it's the same set it's the same it's dressed the same like it's identical and so i think that all of this stuff was done at the same time and and you can kind of feel it. it. It doesn't. The camera moves feel different. There's a lot more like the the camera just kind of spinning and whipping around in interesting in, in well somewhat interesting ways. But then he gets he's riding his motorcycle across the water, uh, which is quite deep. And we saw him do it earlier, right? So yes, you know, apparently his motorcycle is is capable of working underwater and then he gets pulled into the water which now apparently is very deep and is fighting uh uh water i am uh we'll we'll go call him water i am uh and (laughs) then surprises water i am because he's (laughs) capable of acting of activating his flame powers underwater which, given that his flame has nothing to do with fire or oxygen, should not be surprising, but apparently it was. And then, for some reason, instead, for some reason, it kills him. I don't, we, I, okay, whatever. And then I, he died. And then he died. Uh, underwater flame kills water. Got it. 
and uh, and then Nicolas Cage uh, enters the the town of San Venganza, which definitely wasn't built on a set and no. made to look old in really obvious and terrible ways. But he's like fully Ghost Rider now, and that's what I really like about the ending, right? Like even without the flames and the skull, he's got the chain wrapped around him. His, awesome. his jacket is good. Like Nicolas Cage looks good in this set. Uh, in this this setup, um, I really don't know what to say about this final. I I like the little crash a, zoom western bat. things that they do. When, I was gonna ask Blackheart. about that. Yeah, like they're looking at each other, and it does the. Like I like zooms that. Zooms in on their eyes, like a. I mean, like after a duel, you know, after that big cowboy buildup with Carter Slade, that was really satisfying. Right, that was you one know, thing that I feel like the movie was getting right, and I just wish it had done that more often. Right, I, I kind of, I kind of wanted it to almost devolve into a kind of shootout. Like it, it feels natural that it would because you you've really leaned into your western element at this point. Um, you know, why not just go there? And, and have some kind of like cool face off. But I just want to, I just want to express the sequence of events here. Right. So Wes Bentley is there with Roxanne. Nicholas Cage arrives. He has the, the contract. Wes Bentley says, you flame on and I'll kill her. Right. She's dead. And Nicholas Cage is like, all right. And he says, but if you want the contract, you got to let her go. So Wes Bentley tosses her aside like a rag doll, which again feels like just a way to get her out of the scene so they don't have to have her there. Tosses her like a rag doll. He hands him the contract and then doesn't let it go and then flames off. <laughs> it's like, certainly you were expecting this, right? Like, as a villain, as a bad person who's done bad things and considers things ways to do things bad you wouldn't have thought that he would just immediately turn into Ghost Rider after you threw the girl away. <laughs> Maybe just sort of push her more to the side, but no. still within reach, but whatever. You know, for a demon, he has a lot of trust. He he does. He's looking at another flaming skull guy and saying, yeah, you and me, we're pretty similar. Why would you lie to me? <clears throat> Why would you do that? You're one of us. Yeah. Uh, then Ghost Rider starts throwing flaming rocks at him. Uh, and Wes Bentley finds that very uncomfortable, but I guess that's supposed to be like a dodge. Like Wes Bentley's whole thing is that he wants to wait until daytime, uh, because Ghost Rider can't be out in the sun, which I didn't realize Ghost Rider was a vampire, <laughs> but that's Why the way not? the movie's playing it. That, uh, if he's in the sunlight, he can't be Ghost Rider, which, uh, okay, sure. Whatever you say. Sounds good. And uh, so they start fighting. Uh, his his Ghost Rider face sort of comes and goes a few times. And Cage is, is definitely chewing some scenery here and having a good time with it. But the main thing that this has been building towards, and probably why Wes Bentley sort of fails as, as a villain, is we have no idea what this contract is going to do for the holder of it right like it it doesn't really make a ton of sense 
and and so finally we see the effects as he he opens the contracts and he says, you know, I own you, come to me, and all of the lost souls of San Venganza, San, San Vengeance, <laughs> um, go inside him, and he doesn't look happy about it, right? Like that's the other component here. Like they all come inside, and he actually looks scared and afraid, like he didn't know this was going to happen. And in a film that has villain problems, I don't know if it's a great idea to have your villain at the end look completely bewildered by what's going on, right? Like this I've is made what... a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you don't want to see your main villain, who is a prince of hell by the accounting of the film, be like, oh, well, this might have been a mistake. <laughs> this was a bad idea. Um and I, I have a feeling that it probably was meant to be a bigger thing. Like, he's like, no, this isn't what I wanted. <clears throat> um, but he just seems so inept. And you just don't want your villain to look that dumb, if at all possible. It was a real, like, Jafar moment when he turns into the yeah, genie at the end of Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a good analog. Um, because you can tell in the scenes when they're doing, like, the big swooping camera motions... And the, the souls are, like, flying through him around him. He's worried. Like, he's scared. But then there are a couple of longer shots where he's got his arms open and he's just, like, accepting them. So there's some conflict even there. Like, the direction given in one set of performances was not the same as the direction given in another set of performances. <clears throat> Which, you know, again, just doesn't... It just doesn't seem to hold together. Not in the way that you would want. But so, uh, you know, this leads to kind of the final confrontation. And then obviously, of course, Wes Bentley is, is now Legion, right? You know, again, <laughs> the exorcist, right? <laughs> so, uh, so he's Legion. He has all these souls inside of him. And, and that has given him all of this incredible power. His eyes have turned red. He looks like Nightcrawler now, basically. <laughs> and uh, then Eva Mendes, uh, or Eva... I need something to do. Mendes uh, picks up the lever action rifle or shotgun or whatever it is and shoots him a couple times, which makes him mad, but, uh, you know, distracts him enough. She throws it to Ghost Rider. He puts his hand. <laughs> out We've been talking about Ghost so Rider long. a long time. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah. He puts his hand out of the sun and then is able to convert the gun into like a ghost rider gun and then shoots Wes Bentley with it. That makes his whole body fall apart and he has to shape, reshape and reform with the help of the demons. And, and then finally ghost rider like delivers the, the blow because now that Blackheart has taken all of the souls into his body, he has a soul that he can be judged for even if it's not his. Uh, so again, this is a bit nebulous. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, accurate, <clears throat> but uh, we can at least sort of take it for what it is, I guess. And uh, and so he, he uses the pen and stare on uh, Blackheart, and, and that's the end of it, right? He's able to, to end him and, you know, sort of remove the the power of the soul, right? We don't really know what happens to Blackheart. He kind of just falls over and turns into smoke. But, uh, 
and, you know, maybe that's sequel bait, like keep him alive. I don't, I don't know. But Ghost Rider is, is successful. He sort of flames down and she touches his face and, you know, we get I like that, that little moment. It's, it's a good moment. I mean, it's probably one of the better character moments between these two. Cause he turns away and he's like, I'm a monster, which again, it's a good line, really good line. Very appropriate for this scene. Nothing that Johnny has done yet justifies him calling himself that though. Nothing that we've seen. Again, it feels like cutting room. If becoming stuff. the ghostwriter had been a bigger conflict, then I it would have made a little more sense. Right, but it's not painted that way. And if he did feel that way, we we never saw it. Um, but so really, the film or, or this section of it, and you know, the the battle ends with him refusing to give up the ghostwriter. The devil had promised that if he did this for him, that he would take the curse away, which ostensibly is what Johnny has wanted. But now that he has this power, he believes that he can use it for good. And then in a movie whose geography makes zero sense whatsoever, uh, Johnny and <laughs> Eva Mendes head back to their, their tree where they, they carve their names and they'd be together forever. And, and Johnny says, you know, I, I can never be with you because I'm the ghost writer, but maybe we can... Uh, you know, maybe maybe we can still be be together forever. You know, whatever. Um, and and we get a nice little you know, lovey dovey moment at the end to to cap everything off. And and that's it. That's that's Ghost Rider. Um, directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, his last comic book film. <laughs> um, he just did a Netflix movie with uh, one of the Wayans brothers. A nice little rom com, apparently. Um. If you listen to Johnson, I listened to a podcast with him not too long ago. Uh, he considers himself a screenwriter. Like, that's his his main avocation. Uh, he got into directing, you know, because of his screenwriting opportunities and, and for the opportunity to write other screenplays. That's why he, he always sort of reserved the right to be able to do a screenplay himself. Um, so now he, is, he seems more interested in just the writing side of things and, and directing every so often. But... You know, so Ghost Rider ends, and and I I'm not going to say that it ends badly, but it, it suffers from a consistent comic book movie problem, and that is the weak villain problem. <clears throat> you know, one of the reasons why I think people responded so powerfully to the Infinity Stone saga in the MCU is because Thanos is actually a pretty decent villain. Um, he has some okay. layers. He's got a bit of depth. You know, he, he at least has an understandable motivation, which is. Yeah. Which is Blackheart's problem here. Why is he doing this? What is he gaining from this? Right? Is he just trying to mess with his dad? Is he trying to prove himself? You know, none of those things are clear with him. And, and even if they were simple, like I, I just want to cause problems, that would have been more interesting to me. Like I, I would have rather him be a character that is just like, I just, I just want to go fuck some shit up. It's like, why not? I'm a demon. Who's going to stop me? You know that would have been more compelling to me as as a demo, as a motivation for a demon to to confront with, you know, the relatively stable Ghost Rider. Then I'm fine with that. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this like completely out of this world. You know, I'm going to take over the planet with the demons. You know, like it doesn't have to be that for it to still work. Um. So yeah, I mean, a problematic movie, uh, not a not a great quote unquote film, but a film that has really amazing moments sprinkled throughout. 
a cool performance from Nicolas Cage that I think is was probably maligned for being, as you said, for being overacting more than it really was. Yeah. Um, especially given what we've seen out of Nick Cage now. I mean, like, let's be honest here. Uh, you watch something like Mandy, like Mandy is unhinged. Mm-hmm. This is, is restrained by comparison, right? Like it's a, he might as well be doing Hamlet, right? But it's, <laughs> I would love to see Nicolas Cage doing Hamlet. Oh. Yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> to be not. It would just be him screaming. Yeah, he would just be, be screaming, screaming in nonsense. a corner or something. But in any case, I, I, it's still a very watchable film. Like that's one of the things about that I will say about most of Mark Stephen Johnson's output is that it is it is watchable, right? Again, he's very workmanlike in his approach. There's nothing that's going to wow you with uh, you know shot composition or anything like that. There's some cool moments that again, this movie it's it's the two the twin Ghost Rider moment. Like that yeah. is is really well done. Looks great, very well executed, great special effects, which I think has to be said universally for this movie is that given that this is from 07, which a lot of movies from this era, they don't hold up well, and that most of the special effects in this look okay. Face replacements, eh, but the Ghost Rider effects in general, they look really good. The flame stuff is excellent, and I would not be surprised to hear that the flame technology developed for this movie is now basically used as like a universal standard for flame in film, because it looks fantastic. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot to love here. But as you said, we have been talking for a while, so let's go ahead and, and let's let's move into our, our our final phase here as we talk about the one thing that could have been done, or perhaps should have been done, in, in Ghost Rider's case, to uh, to elevate it, right? To take it from this problematic space into something a little bit more dependable and something that would have been a bit more successful in the long run. For me, um, the one thing that I've been thinking about this ever since we brought up doing this film as as a potential episode, I've been thinking about what I would change about this movie because there's a lot to change. Yeah, but ultimately, I I would I would change either the entire villain, like the entire antagonist plotline. To where it's either a different villain, and I, you know, there are a couple that I would suggest, or just some other actor, <laughs> someone not else. West, don't not cast West West Bentley. Bentley. Just don't put him in this movie. Sure. Let him let him film those plastic bags. He can do that. Because he's good at that. Um, I yeah. would have really liked maybe um, one of the other villains that stands out to me that I know why they didn't pick this villain. But Scarecrow was a really cool villain and ghostwriter. Um, but I know they didn't pick that because he was just used from the DC universe to be in Batman Begins. 
So mm. you don't want to have, you know, multiple characters with the same names. And that's usually why DC and Marvel avoid doing that if they can in their films. Yeah, but I like the plot line with Scarecrow, that villain. Mm. Um, that would have made a really cool movie. But I get it. Like Blackheart is a re- is a more traditional villain talking about Ghost Rider. However, it's just a very cheesy villain. And it sets up because it's it's Mephisto's or or in this case Mephistopheles' son, you have to set up the conflict between Blackheart and Mephisto, and we just don't get enough of that in this to really understand the motivations for any of the villains. So that is that's what bothers me the most. Yeah, um, and Blackheart's really underutilized. Like, in the comics, Blackheart is, I, I mean, he has a demonic form. I mean, the demons in the Marvel Universe are kind of all over the place in terms of their visuals, but, you know, Blackheart specifically is like this this massive, tailed demon with almost like dreadlocks for hair. He wasn't... And that just gets completely erased. Like, you don't even, you know, it would have been kind of cool to see him transition into that form for the final yeah, fight or something. Yeah, like the you know? John Romita Jr. looking... Crazy with all the hair and mm-hmm. it's kind of wild. I would have liked to have seen something like that if they were going to keep Blackheart as the primary villain and not do something you know experimental. Right. I almost think it could have just been. I w- I almost would have liked to have seen this first one be him in the middle of a fight between Mephisto or, or Mephistopheles. And and some of the other lords of hell, like they're all competing yeah. to try and get this contract. And, you know, like, Ghost Rider is, is like, Mephisto's, you know, like, ace in the hole. Like, I've got you. And they don't have him. They don't have anybody that can do it. And so, like, you could introduce a couple of different villains. Maybe only have him square off against one or two of them. Um, I don't know. There's there's you definitely... You could do, like, Zadkiel and Zarathos and... and or not Zarathos. Um, Zadkiel's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, when you could do Lucifer himself. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. part of the comics eventually. Eventually, yeah. Um, I don't know. It just it, it definitely it suffers from a villain problem, both in in execution, you know, by the actor, and also just using that character. Um, yeah, and it just using that character in this way, I think, is a, is a mistake. Um, and, and again, I'm not sure if the villains that we saw in this film were all always a part of this film or something that came in later as well. Um, for me, I, I think, and, and I, I need to create a sound clip for this uh, with just Doc Brown saying, it's the script, Marty, it's the script. <laughs> uh, because it's the script is just everywhere. I don't yeah. think this is the script that he turned in, but whatever they cut down to make this movie it does. It just doesn't work. It, and structurally, it doesn't work. Like, you know, in in editing, you're you're talking about like moment to moment editing, right? Your continuity editing, and then you're talking about like your your structural editing, right? Your scene to scene, big picture movie editing, and the structural editing of this movie. It's bad. I'd say seventy five percent of the time doesn't work. Scenes don't follow onto other scenes characters disappear and reappear from the film again the cops in that movie the last time we see them is them delivering an ultimatum to one of the main characters that if you don't do something we're we're going to ruin johnny blaze's life 
and that nothing happens. And she sort of turns around and goes like, and that's the last that we hear of them in the film. That is a structural editing problem. Yeah. You know, where you have set up a thread in the movie that you never pay off and have no intention of paying off. And and I would and and there are others right like the the three elemental demon guys like what the hell like one of them you know they they all are are dropped in and then they disappear almost immediately and it just doesn't it doesn't flow it doesn't make sense um, so the that would be my thing is that the script is just is just all over the place and the structural editing of the film like the large scale big piece editing of the film is just wrong like it just doesn't function it's nothing like the snowman we talked about last week mm-hmm. where there are just massive pieces missing there are pieces that have been intentionally omitted probably for runtime that needed to be there for this for this script to work um and so, like, you know, this is one of those movies. And I would say, honestly, the original Daredevil, the other Mark Stephen Johnson superhero movie, the director's cut of that film, while it didn't add a ton more footage in, it's like 12, 13 more minutes, um, it, it improved it dramatically. And it was a lot of small stuff, right? It wasn't like big action scenes. It was small character stuff where people were talking, talking about we relationships. We used this term last week, connective tissue. Right. Those it's just, things that you need. And this movie just doesn't have it. Um, and again, even my, even, even my kids picked up on it or like, whoa, where, you know, where was that scene missing? Right. And it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's a problem with this movie. So that's, that's mine. Uh, and it's, it's a big one obviously, but I think even with those issues, it flows very nicely. I mean, if you're just sort of passively paying attention, it's fine. Uh, and there are enough kind of cool moments in it that are probably pull you through. Especially if you have any connection to Ghost Rider as a character at all, um, you know, I think it's still you know, worth a watch. Because who knows when we'll get another Ghost Rider? Like, I, I really don't see how they could work him into the MCU as it is currently. It doesn't seem to match the the vibe of Marvel right now. Mm-hmm. Um, none of their vigilante characters really match their current vibe. No, which is why I think they segmented him off in the the Netflix TV shows. And by all accounts, by all rumors, like the Marvel movie guys hate the TV guys. Like, want nothing to do with them. And so, and it pretty much said we're not going to put any of those characters. You know, even though I think John Bernthal is is a decent Punisher, he's pretty solid. Uh, we'll probably never see him in the cinematic universe. No, universes, Thomas Jane. No, he's not. I mean. Maybe we'll Thomas talk Jane, about that movie. Thomas Jane killed that Russian guy with his bare hands. That was real fun. <clears throat> but no, I don't know. All right, so uh, I guess let's let's wrap up. We've had a nice long chat with this one, but what would be your failure piece score? So your rating from zero to a hundred, and whether or not you recommend Ghost Rider. This is a complicated film for me because Ghost Rider is in my top five favorite comic book heroes of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, don't ask me why because I don't know. Uh, so in my heart, it's a 100 because it's always a 100. Right, right. But realistically, it's more like a 60. Yeah. Because it's got, it's got yeah. serious foundational problems. 
um, that unfortunately can't be totally saved by the glory shots of Ghost Rider on fire. No. However, mm, yeah. however, this is, I think that this is an important film if you, if you are part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe train, like if that is, if that's your Marvel movies, this is another kind of like 2003 Hulk. This is another film that you should see it because you should familiarize yourself with this other part of the Marvel universe that we just don't see anymore and that they have effectively disowned to the point where if I bring them up in casual conversation, people are like, well, that's not MCU. And I'm like, oh, I, I know. Mm-hmm. I also don't care. Um, right. I want more people to go back and look at these films and see you know the the formation of this immense industry of comic book films that we have currently um you know these early marvel efforts really helped establish that universe and i want more people to see this film and appreciate it for what it is and it's also a wonderful performance from sam elliott which if you just like watching him do things yeah He's watch him like, he's, he's perfect, perfect. Yeah. um and and for me like i love i love the character of carter slade so much that like that couldn't have come together any better in the film and it's also worth seeing nicholas cage chew scenery and turn into a flaming skeleton yeah no i mean it's a it's a fun performance from him uh, which is is not necessarily something that you're always going to get from a nick cage movie at this point although he seems to have kind of come into his own in the last few years um, a little bit more comfortable sort of letting that part of himself, you know, so that freak out stuff happen again. But uh, I, I'm pretty close to that. I'll put it a bit higher. I'll put it at 65 because I think those moments do elevate it. Um, and And the sad part of it for me is that it speaks to a film that probably <clears throat> that at one point there was a, there was a movie here that would be more satisfying than the one that we got and that there were pieces that, uh, that would have worked better. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm no Mark Steven Johnson apologist. I'm not going to, to, uh, you know, be like, Oh, if only the, we could get the Mark Steven Johnson cut of ghost Rider. Like we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> Make that a hashtag on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> At least exactly. the Johnson cuts. All, all. <laughs> Yeah, all, oh, all twelve of us will demand it. HBO Max or Disney Plus, yeah. But I, I'm kind of with you in that. I think that all of these pre MCU movies, uh, even the leaners like Hulk uh, or the Incredible Hulk, you know, they were kind of like not MCU, but kind of close enough. People still lump them in because you can't pretend they don't exist. You know, I think these earlier. MCU movies like Daredevil, like Ghost Rider, um, I think they're worth visiting so that you could see how the process worked and how we got to the MCU, how we we created a universe for these characters to exist in with a style and a tone that could be acceptable to somebody that didn't have prior knowledge of these characters. 
because this is where they were figuring that out. And unfortunately, a lot of their figuring it out made it pretty unsuccessful. Um, but the the balance that Johnson tries to strike in this between action and um, you know general story exposition and humor is is not far off from the mix that Iron Man would perfect a year later. You know, there's there's a serious undertone, a char- a main character who's willing to be a little strange, do things that are a little odd. It, there's there's some compete there's some pieces here that you know if you were producing a movie with Marvel around this time, you know you're going to be shown these screeners, you're going to be following along. I I think you know what you really have is Favreau come in and do what Favreau does to movies that were already trying to get there and just hadn't quite gotten there yet. And then, you know, Iron Man, for whatever reason, it, it makes the move, right? It gets, it gets the job done. And so, you know, I, I'm, I don't have too much of a problem recommending Ghost Rider. It's, it's a problematic movie. It'll be frustrating to watch. There are leaps of logic, stuff the characters do that don't make sense. Scenes obviously deleted. But at the same time, it's it's kind of a neat movie, and and you'll probably want to watch it when you watch Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance, which is the one you should really watch <laughs> because that one is out of this world nuts. Uh, the second act is terrible. The middle middle of the movie is is just god awful, but the opening and the ending are great, um, and and really good. Uh, and again, as somebody who just loves Ghost Rider, I'm, I'm just happy to take what I can get at this point. If we're being, if we're, if, if we're really looking at it, I'm just glad that it exists. You yeah, know? that's that's what it is for me. It's like I want to see that character on the big screen somehow. Right. All right. Well, we got uh, we got to see him, and, and that's a cool thing. Maybe someday, someone at the MCU will say, "Hey, what about that Ghost Rider guy?" And we'll we'll go from there. But. Uh, until then, we'll be happy with what Nick Cage decided to give us, and uh, and we'll take it, and that's fine. All right, so where can you be found on a social media game? You can find me on Twitter at Baskinator. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at T Baskin, or you can contact us both at FPS Theater on Twitter, and you can call us or uh, I guess you can email us really at failurepiece at gmail.com. It's as happy as to hear from you. Yeah, it's, I don't want to talk to anybody on the phone, but I'll take an email. That's fine. All right. So, well, thanks for listening in. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion of 2007's Ghost Rider. Uh, we'll be back next week with another cinematic disaster, a misfire of epic proportions, and we'll attempt to uh, break it down, discuss it in detail, and see if there's anything of value to be mined from that deep, dark treasure within uh but remember you can't really be a failure if you're loved and we love you so remember we'll see you next time